This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, the place where we give you the latest, greatest research and information. You need to live healthier, happier lives. Happy days are here again. And uh, you know what? As, as we are known to do on the show, we like to celebrate everything. Today is Thank You Thursday. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, in situations from interpersonal to corporate, a show of gratitude can make a huge difference in happiness and morale of those involved. Today, we thank everybody. So thank your waiter. Thank your, you know, your bus drivers. Thank your producers. Thank everyone. You guys, I just wanted to thank you. If someone has anything to do with your food... Thank them. Thank them. Thank Duh. you very much. No matter what You're your welcome. normal personality would, would I guess, entail, what kind of yeah. response, just say thank you. Always say thank you. They're, they have your food. You want to make sure your food is safe. It's really good advice. Thank you. Why, really do you keep, why do you keep saying you're welcome, by the way? Well, you keep thanking me. No, I don't. Yeah, you do. No. Thank you very much. You are welcome. What do you, why? He's got a problem. Mm. He doesn't know he's saying it. It's been well established. It's awkward. Awkward. Hey, by the way, it's also Prime Rib Day. Mm. Mm. My favorite day of the week is Prime Rib Day. Every, once a week, Prime Rib? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be great? Just on Thursdays? Oh, Prime Rib Thursday. Yeah, just a little medium rare. How do you have your meat cooked? I like a little medium rare. Yeah, medium. I always thought Prime Ribs were... Uh, Ribs, but they only served you a prime number of ribs. No. Nope. Prime rib. Oh, I love prime rib. Such a great. Mm. Mm. Hey, we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about uh, if look at this, if we can get a car to drive us home. Yes. Without, you know, fully automated. You just sit there and you can get a, a ride home. By the way, Google. Yeah. Giving away free rides in their auto, uh, autonomous vans. That they have in Arizona. So you have to go to Arizona. But, you but they're free testing ride. them. And if you qualify, I guess if you pass whatever yeah. they call a background check, then you get free rides in their van. So if you get a ride to Arizona, can you get a ride like back to Connecticut? No, no, no. You have to be in Arizona and, and then they'll drive you Arizona. around Phoenix, Okay, I believe is the so point. That's a great thing. So if, all, if Google can do that, yeah. then why don't we have more technology in our medical system mm. that has all of the machines talking to each other? So that it, you, it could actually replace the nurse having to run in and do something because, you know, if the rest – if you're not oxygenating perfectly, why wouldn't the machines just naturally calibrate it so you're constantly exactly perfectly oxygenating? You know why Good they question. need it in the hospitals? Why? Because every time a pregnant woman's monitor falls off, Her finger. the nurses come in and they put it back on yeah. and they interrupt their sleep. And your sleep, yeah. And my sleep. When you're Let's there. not forget about me. <laughs> but and it's got to irritate the nurse to just walk in and put that monitor back on. Yeah. What you need is a robot that can walk in and exactly. just gently slide it on without waking anybody up. You'd think also they'd be able to find a way to keep that little clip or, yeah, on. Figure out a better way than an alligator <laughs> clip on yeah. your finger, but whatever. You could always staple it. Well, Some tape, maybe? Tape it. In 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 – doctors and medical situation with my family it's like they just recently got to the point where they sort of synced all the records 
Oh, yeah. That's a big thing, too. We've been in the same uh, insurance hospital system for quite a while, and they just barely got to the point where you show up to one of their clinics, and it has all your records with your interaction See, with awesome. that hospital system, it's right? Perfect. Whether you're at a hospital, the eye doctor, whatever, it's all there. To the point, I go to the eye doctor the other day, and he points out I haven't had a physical in like eight yeah. years. Well, I've I'm been like, telling yeah, you so. that for years. <laughs> I looked at him like, why is the eye doctor talking to me about my physical? Yeah, that's Here, kind of weird. Here's yeah. one. What if we never had to refill out all of our information when we went to a brand new doctor? Well, how would you know you're at the doctor? If you didn't have, you know, three pages of information to fill out. The magazines would, in the waiting room. What would that's you do how for you know. that first 25 minutes while you're waiting? You read a, a you know, two-month-old copy of Entertainment Weekly. You would? Yeah. Is, is that what you would choose? Yeah. I just look at my phone. I would just listen to podcasts of the Matt Townsend show. Well, there's that, too. So you fill it out at every new doctor you go to. Yeah. And then all the information that you've already filled out... Once you're waiting for the doctor, the nurse asks you the same questions. Right. Then the doctor gets there, asks what? you the exact same questions. Well, you guys can't read? Yeah, it makes me mad. I'm with you. Um, so we're, we will be talking with an expert about why we keep dragging our feet on automating our healthcare world. We're automating our roads, mm. right? We're trying to. We automate our airplanes. We have an airplane that can land in the middle of fog. Mm. It's all automated. Get you right to the runway. And yet we can't automate... Medical devices? Is it that we can't or that we don't want to? It's that we've made the system so complicated and expensive, nobody wants to be the early uh, leader in the field. Gotcha. Because it costs all the money to to get it through the process. And then everyone just waits, and then once one person pays for it or one company pays for it, the rest jump in like, yeah, let's do that. And then competition. Mm. No one's competing to, to automate the the technology and the devices. I think Jeff Goldblum posed an ex- excellent question when he said, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that nobody stopped to think if they should. It's mm. a great, great point. And, and by the way, just interesting little side note, it's a movie thought. It's a thought from movies. Yeah, then they drop that virus in the spaceship. Yeah, so here we go happens. again. It was great. Wait, See, Jeff, that was two need, different movies. Oh, but what sorry. you need, Jeffrey, is you need... Both mo- Jeff Goldblum. You need a movie show. We had to look into that. You need a movie show. Um, hey, by the way, one other quick thing. Um, if any of you see, there must be a woman walking around with one boot. Mm. Because on my drive in today. One boot Brenda. Was it one boot Brenda? Yeah. But I drove in today and there was just a boot on the side on a the boot? sidewalk. One boot. A boot. It's a, uh, she how was a walking boot? a boot. Like how a boot that? Yeah, she, it was a, it was a female boot. And so if anyone sees a bootless female. With a rubber boot. Okay. Are you just assuming I found female? the other one. You're just assuming? No, it's, it's, fe- it's a female boot. Oh, okay. I mean, well, I mean, it's a, yeah. It, would, it was probably sold as a female's boot. Okay. I don't know who bought it. Right. It, so right now. It could be reappropriated for other uses. Absolutely. Bertha or Brenda? Could be Brenda. Could be Bertha. You don't know. Right now, know. Brenda. We'll just be looking. I mean, we're trying to help everybody that we can on the show. She's suffering a bout of bootlessness. <laughs> We'll get to, uh, we'll get to all that craziness, but first let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what is going on around the country? We Pre- should be worried. President about? Trump unveiled his broad tax proposal Wednesday, including a sharp cut in the corporate tax rate from thirty five percent to fifteen percent for individuals. The administration proposed reducing the seven tax brackets to three, ten, twenty five, and thirty five percent. But they didn't. 
kind of say who, what, you know, what income level meets oh, wow. each bracket. So we'll see where that goes. I'm going for the 10. You want the 10? Yeah. 10 is a good number. Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchen said that the proposal is the biggest tax cut and the largest tax cut reform in the history of our country. We're going to double the standard deduction so a married couple will not pay any taxes on the first $24,000 they earn. Cool. Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohn said the proposal would additionally repeal the estate tax or the so-called death tax as well as the catch-all alternative minimum tax and the 3.8% tax on investment from uh, President Barack Obama's health care law, the Associated Press reports. While Republicans had wanted a border adjustment tax on imports, it was not included in the White House plan. The White House reportedly hopes some of its family-friendly provisions, such as adjustments that help with child care costs, will give Democrats a strong incentive to negotiate the deal. But Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez has argued that Trump's latest proposals, another gift to corporations and billionaires like himself, Republican lawmakers are privately miffed and not being are being shut out of the whole process of coming up with the plan. And many are not too pleased with what they heard yesterday. It's not a tax reform, one Republican said. It's not even close. Oh, boy. So, not even close. On, on, on goes the fight. Yeah. We'll see what happens. All five major networks now have released polls pegging the 100-day mark for Trump. NBC, uh, Wall Street Journal, Trump at 40% approval. CBS, 41. ABC, Washington Post at 42. CNN at 44. And Fox News at 45. Under Trump's definition, all five of these polls would qualify as fake. CNN's poll found that 37% of Americans think the president is untrustworthy. What percent? 37%. Fox News found that 36% of voters would actually vote for Trump again. Oh, wow. So, there's your numbers. Luckily, he's only in his first 100 days. Yeah, it's great. He's got a lot of time to fix the numbers. On Wednesday, senators were briefed at the White House. Remember, all all senators, 100 senators, yeah, all had to go to the White party. House. And they were briefed by... Did they uh, all show up? I believe they were all there. Uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell asked for the briefing, which was delivered by the Secretary of State, Defense Secretary, National Intelligence Director, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, in a statement, Tillerson, Mathis, Cotus, and so they said the goal was the United States is to convince the regime of North Korea to de-escalate and return to a path of dialogue. Just move towards peace. Excellent. Right? We're not trying to have We're a not, war here. Yeah, we don't want a war. The U.S. does remain open to negotiations, a statement read, but is prepared to defend ourselves and our allies. Several senators told the Washington Post that during the briefing, they did not learn much about how the U.S. will deal with North Korea and its provo- provocation. So they don't know what they're going to do, but they said this is our goal is not to go to war. <laughs> And then they were questioning, why why did we have to come to the White House, but you held a similar meeting with House members in their chambers over on Capitol Hill? What are we over here for? Because we don't have room for 400 and something. Well, yeah. And the president sort of popped in and said hi and left. Oh, he did? Yeah, he sort of like waved. Like, hey, how are you going, guys? We have audio of him actually popping in and saying hi. There it is. Okay. So they kind of question the whole process. Good. Uh, and finally, Amazon announced Wednesday that it will be releasing the Echo Look, huh? a camera that will rate your outfits based on data from machine learning algorithms with advice from fashion specialists. You are not wearing that. As part of Amazon Echo's line of home assistant gadgets, so it ties into their little mm-hmm. uh, automated assistant they have. Um the, uh, the Echo Look can be asked to take a full-length photo of you, and it can record videos of you turning or walking so it can see how you look from different angles uh, that you can't catch by craning your neck or head around in a mirror. You as look, you look ridiculous. Right? 
Make it work. Echo Look also integrates the app style check that will compare two different outfits for you and let you know which one is more flattering. Hmm. I need that. Costs $200. You kiss your mother in those clothes? (laughs) And at the moment, you must have an invitation to be able to purchase it. Next time, dress with the lights on. (laughs) So one one description I read, it records like – you can put on all your, your outfits, all your clothes, and it'll, like, mix and match for you. It'll tell you which ones really don't work for you. Why are you wearing that? Try something else. And then because it's Amazon, it yeah. will also go into your Amazon account and start making suggestions of clothes you should buy. Wow. And it, it, I think it also kind of looks at, like, your, your body shape. And so it'll go find clothes that'll fit you, however your body shape is. I don't know. It's all the crazy. 1970s called. They want their bell bottoms back. <laughs> You look like a pear. <laughs> I was like, that this offensive machine. <laughs> I'm gonna bet if you bought one, it won't last more than three weeks in your house, right? Before you just take the batteries out. Yeah, like I don't agree. You're gone. You're gone. Oh, good news. That's fun time. Fun time. Well, we will take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about automation in healthcare. What is the delay? For heaven's sakes, we already have devices that could talk together, should talk together. Except instead we have an alarm that sounds and a nurse has to run in to to make a simple change. Couldn't we just automate it? It's all up next. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Have you ever wondered why we can land a 400-ton airplane in the fog, but at the hospital a nurse still has to answer hundreds of patient alarms every day? Why is it that our life-saving equipment in hospitals, it's not more automated and connected and integrated uh, from one machine to another? Well, our next guest, uh, uh, Thomas Hooven, is joining us. He's here to talk with us about his research on how automation in healthcare could save lives. Thomas Hooven is a clinical instructor of pediatrics in the Division of Neonatal Perinatal Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Hooven, thank you so much for helping us today. Well, thanks so much, Matt. I'm happy to be on your show. This is such a, an important thing. I mean, again, we can have a car that can drive us through a city without anyone sitting in the driver's seat, and yet, and yet uh, we have devices that aren't even connected and, and integrated um, in, our, in our healthcare system. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I got interested in this topic through my clinical work, which, uh, as you mentioned, is a neonatologist. So, um, you know, I, I work in the neonatal ICU. We take care of babies who are anywhere from uh, 500 grams up to, uh, you know, a year of life. And so, yeah. in some ways, these are really the most vulnerable patients. And obviously, they can't tell you if they need help, um, if something's going wrong, and we have them connected to very sophisticated equipment that monitors their vital signs, um, that you know sends that information to computers, and also that supports their their lives through uh, you know through respirators and breathing machines, drug pumps, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what's sort of bizarre, as you said, is that those machines are not talking to each other, 
in ways that in transportation or the airline industry, uh, we absolutely would never accept. Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, speaking of alarms, do you uh, have one going off that you need to attend to? <laughs> so sorry. Is no, that a neonatal I, 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 alarm? I'm, I'm, in, I'm in my lab, and uh, that's, that seems to be a, some sort of fire alarm test, but I, okay. I, think, we're, I think we're okay. Okay, Apologize just let us, let us know. If you smell smoke, we'll just cut it short. <laughs> we'll catch you again tomorrow. Sure, sure. Sorry. <laughs> that's fine. Um, talk to me about this... Um, you you gave a really good example about pulmonary uh, what was it called pulmonary pulmonary hypertension hypertension and how if if all of the, if we could just integrate some of the machines that already do what we need to do but they're not talking to each other we could really make lives a lot safer talk about that sure so uh, babies with pulmonary hypertension are of real concern to neonatologists this is a scary disease. It's associated with prematurity, and basically what can happen is that the blood vessels in the lungs can constrict and really stop blood flow to the lungs, which, as you can imagine, is, uh, can be an absolutely devastating event. Yeah. And when that happens, you know, the first thing that will happen with a baby is the oxygen saturation on a monitor will go down, um, and it'll alarm. <laughs> And uh, there's a quick, generally there's a pretty quick fix for this. If you get to the baby fast and increase the amount of oxygen that the baby is getting, uh, the blood vessels in the lungs generally will open up again, blood will start to flow, and you can really, frankly, save a life that way. But the way it's set up, where you have a monitor that beeps, and that's the first thing that happens, and a nurse has to hear that monitor, she has to come to the bedside, and then she has to, he or she has to turn up the oxygen using a knob. Uh, that strikes me as kind of crazy. I mean, the, the delay, and look, NICU nurses are absolutely second to none, in my opinion. They're, they're incredibly oh, they're the, yeah. responsive and, and alert, but they're still human beings. And if they're taking care of two or three patients, they can be with another patient when that baby with pulmonary hypertension's alarm starts to go off. And if it takes them 30 seconds or a minute to get to that baby, you can really miss critical time. And I hate to say it, but... We do see babies where during that period, things really spiral out of control oh. and, uh, you know, you can, have, you can have devastating outcomes. And so you compare that situation to, for instance, what happens on an airplane. I mean, a 747 has hundreds of integrated systems with all kinds of fail-safe redundancy, computers that are monitoring thousands of variables at a time, and changing how the airplane is flying in response to all of those, those variables that are changing constantly. And that's, that's how we've gotten to a place with airplanes where you can take off in New York and land in Europe. And mm. it, it, from reading and, and talking with pilots, my understanding is that very much of that can happen without human intervention. So why is it in medicine that, that we need a person to come to the bedside turn a knob uh, in response to, you know, a continuous variable that a computer can absolutely monitor thousands of times a second. Well, and especially when it sounds like, too, that the health could be dramatically improved if this were automatic anyway, right? Because it seems like a 30-second delay in a, in a could, you know, that's, that's not, that's horrible in a serious critical situation, but it just seems like it ought to be doing it anyway and doing immediate changes anyway, quickly. 
You know Absolutely. What I, mean? It, I mean, it just yeah. seems like it's that's what we would want is the so, fastest. And then then it seems like why couldn't we just we could still notify the nurse that it took place. So absolutely. a half a minute later, she comes in and makes sure that it was the right mix or the right twist or the right turn. Absolutely. And so here's here's the thing. Here's here's the here's the sort of surprising fact. People have made this machine. I mean, it's um, it's sort of an obvious thing to do. Right. So. They, uh, in 2009, a group developed a respirator that senses how much, ox- how much oxygen is in a baby's blood, and uh, it has a sort of a closed loop like you have in airplanes or in self-driving cars where if the variable of oxygen saturation is going down, the machine responds by giving more oxygen to the baby, just how you would like. And uh, this machine was tested in several hospitals on premature babies. This was done in Europe. And they found, again, this is 2009 that they did this work, that indeed it improved babies' oxygen saturations considerably. The babies, premature babies, ended up spending on average two hours more every day at a safe oxygen level when they were on this machine than when they were on conventional ventilators that Perfect. Don't, right. don't sense that. Duh. I mean, duh. And notice, by the way, I don't know if you noticed the dramatics of it all, Thomas, but the minute you said that, the alarms went off. They stopped going off. See how that works? It was perfect. Your fire alarm was stopped the minute you said that there was an actual fix. Um, Here's the question of all questions, though. Why isn't there a fix? Why Why aren't we making this automation happen? Right. So I think the thing you have to look at to answer that question is the FDA. And, um, you know, the FDA has a difficult job to do in terms of regulating new medical devices. Obviously, there's an important role for them to ensure that new devices are safe for patients, and they can't let that go. But as I dug into this and and researched the question of why we don't have more of these systems in our hospitals, what I discovered is that the FDA really, um, for major new innovations, presents a serious roadblock for innovators, and particularly the people who invent machines that are the most innovative, you know, the kinds of things that I'm talking about that are life-sustaining, um, automated closed-loop systems that can really prevent emergencies, those things get hung up in a sort of regulatory framework and can take anywhere from three to ten years to actually show up in hospitals. That's, that's a long time, and, and frankly, that's where the kind of uh, respirator that I'm talking about, the closed-loop respirator, sits. It's somewhere in the FDA approval process. And these, these sorts of technologies are not limited to the NICU. There are, there are devices that have been tested and shown to work in scientific studies that can, for instance, look at an EKG, you know, um, the, the, yeah. what you get when you go to the a The heart monitor, right. Yeah. And these machines can do really fine-grained uh, evaluation of patterns in an EKG that no human would ever be able to detect. I mean, this is not something that a cardiologist can see with their eyes. It's, it's microsecond variation from beat to beat. That is an important indicator, a predictor of sudden cardiac death. So basically, you know, a, a heart attack out of the blue. Um, that technology exists, not commercially available. Wow. There are, there are beds, and this is sort of a simple one. I mean, you, you kind of think to yourself, why don't we have this? So if, if somebody has cardiac arrest in a hospital and is getting CPR, 
there's a lot of data out there that CPR quality kind of goes down over time. You know, right. people, people get tired. They don't give as good CPR. And so people invented beds, hospital beds, that if there's an emergency and people start doing CPR, the bed detects how well the CPR is being hmm. given. And uh, it gives audible feedback. So the doctors and nurses who are doing the resuscitation know if they're, if they're being effective. And that also, as you would imagine, improves the CPR that people get and has the potential to save lives. The FDA, I think, um, could prioritize getting new technology like this to patients faster without really sacrificing patient safety. Um, and that, that's one of the conclusions that I reached in doing this research. It's, uh, it really is. It's a fascinating idea. I was an EMT for about three years, two, two years actively doing it. And man, alive, just from that was, what, 20-something years ago. But in the last 20, maybe four years, the, how much has changed? Just having defibrillators everywhere now is saving so many lives. And that's just lay people that can make a defibrillator work. Um, I can only imagine what really strong technology could do in the hands of experts like you who, I mean, even the the ability to catch a code, uh, somebody going into cardiac arrest in a hospital setting, you might be able to even have it be more predictive. You might be able to catch it as it as before it even hits maybe full code status. I mean, it just it just seems like it's a no brainer. But uh, again, now we got to move the mountain of um, bureaucracy to make it happen. Let's take a break, Thomas, and come back. I want to continue the discussion and find out what's different here and also what's different between, a, you know, the pharmaceutical tests that they have to do to get a, a, a drug through, um, you know, to, to the point where we could give it to the public versus systems and devices. Medical devices seem like they've even got a harder road in a way. Stick with us. We're speaking with Dr. Thomas Hooven about why we're dragging our feet when more automation and healthcare could save so many more lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Thomas Hooven. He is a clinical instructor of pediatrics in the Division of Neonatal Perinatal Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. And uh, his current research focuses on infectious diseases that affect the fetus and newborn. He wrote a wonderful article about how there are so many um, automations that we could be using in healthcare that would save lives, except we're dragging our feet. Uh, They're not... It, the process to get one of these devices approved is so extensive, um, and the government bureaucracy behind it is creating so many problems that we may we may not be saving as many lives as we could, or using our technology to the ability that we can. Uh, Doctor Hooven, again, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be with you. Thanks, and uh, congratulations! You made it through the fire scare. Well, it seems like the alarms have finished. They're still making some announcements, but uh, don't you love it? Only smoke. I know. Well, we do it. We do that all the time. About once a month here, we get one of those great visits. Yeah, perfect timing right when you're on the radio. <laughs> exactly. Now, talk about it. It seems like too. This would create quite a scare. 
um, in the in any industry where all of a sudden you thought maybe do we need, do we need fewer nurses? But we always hear of nursing shortages. But this really could free up some of the the staff to be to be utilized for higher you know higher service. Sure, absolutely, and you know automation is a buzzword these days in a lot of industries, and there's a lot of fear about the potential effects of automation on our jobs, and medicine is really actually no different. There have been articles about, uh, for instance, computers that can read x-rays or ultrasounds and make diagnoses better and faster than human radiologists, and from a nursing standpoint, you're absolutely right. I mean, people have raised the question of what would happen if you had computers that were doing a lot of the monitoring that we have nurses doing now. I don't really find those concerns all that credible, and it's not something that that I worry about. I mean, you, you spend a day in a hospital or in a medical clinic, and you recognize very quickly that what's really crucial there and, and the major role that nurses play in patient lives is is being someone with a connection, you know, talking with patients and guiding them through difficult processes. That's certainly the the central role that I play in neonatology. And that's not going to get replaced by a computer. Hmm. It's true. And, and really, I mean, so much too is just charting. So much of it is like, you know, double checking. And I mean, I know there's, there's now I've seen just recently with a, a trip to see my um, grandbaby born about a year ago. So much of this now is scanning of labels, um, better communication systems for nurses where now they basically can be reached anywhere by walkie-talkie or, you know, some form of communication device, plus the integration of medical records. It really seems like all this, all of this automation would actually just pick up the game and, and actually create more protection. Um, but, so why, why isn't it happening? Sure. Well, again, um, when you look at the FDA, uh, there, are, there are two really, I think, insightful studies about what's going on here. And um, the, the hurdles that exist for FDA approval for a new device were shown in a, in a really elegant uh, study that came out of Harvard Business School to um, prevent or discourage innovation, particularly by small companies. So when you look at... Um, new medical devices, sort of game-changing medical devices that are coming out of industry, only about 17% of those devices come from small companies that make less than $500 million a year. I mean, that's, that's a small mm, yeah. biomedical company. Um, and that's a big problem. I mean, what that indicates is that these small companies are not entering the arena with new innovations. And the same study talked about the cost of introducing or, or trying to get clearance for a new invention. And it costs about $6.7 million just in terms of the waiting for FDA approval. So that's, that's the amount of money that a, new, that a company can expect to forfeit waiting for FDA approval for a new device. Oh, wow. so that, that's a major reason that these small companies don't want to take the risk. And, you know, you mentioned that I do scientific research and, and I can absolutely relate to it. Like you can have a great idea in science, something that you think could really change the field. If it's going to take 
five years and $100,000 to test that idea, you know, you're less likely to pursue it. You're less likely to go after that than something that you can do in six months for, you know, a few hundred dollars. Uh, so, so that, to me, that analogy really uh, illustrates what, what the problem is with yeah. FDA approval for small companies in particular. Well, and, it's been, and I guess it makes more sense for a small company to wait for a, a larger company to kind of do all the paperwork, get all the uh, patents, make everything legal and happen, and then they just jump in, re-engineer, add their little twist, and, and just go head-to-head and market. That's exactly right. And, and so that's another big point that came out of this Harvard Business School uh, paper that it's much more profitable for these smaller companies and the regulatory system encourages, really encourages sort of copycat products once one of the, one of the big boys has gone through and come out with something, then the smaller companies follow suit rather than potentially putting forward uh, some, some new idea. Um, and that's, that's different, I should say, than the research that's come out of the pharmaceutical company. So, you know, FDA also approves and regulates drugs. And if you do that same sort of analysis of big companies versus small companies who are coming out with new drugs, the pattern is different. So over half of new drug approvals come out of smaller pharmaceutical companies than larger pharmaceutical companies. And that's very interesting. And it comes from exactly what you were saying. So FDA approval for new drugs, which obviously is is a very extensive process as well and involves multiple phases of study, but it's set up so that it really rewards early entrance into the field. So Mm. people who come in with a new idea get, I don't want to say, it's not really preferential treatment, but statistically they stand to make more money and uh, have a smoother approval process, relatively speaking, than companies that come on with follow-up drugs. So there's much more incentive for these smaller companies to invest in new game-changing drugs um, than there is for biotechnology companies to come out with new technology and and throw that in. And and this is so – it's almost so counter, you know, market and capitalism-like – um, because part part of this too is, it, I would think there's a lot of money to be made, and I know a lot of friends that uh, are in the devices, the medical devices world, um, and hospitals would it would provide jobs, it would provide you know maintenance contracts, all these different things, um, and yet we we have this kind of almost seems like archaic method of of processing this, and I, I they would say the whole thing is to protect the end user, but Europe seems to get through it a lot faster than we do. You're right. Yeah. So Europe uh, is sort of provides a really interesting experiment in a different way of doing this, um, and it's kind of. The way they do it in Europe uh, comes out of sort of the structure of the European Union. And when you want to get um, a device approved in the European Union, you basically go through the country where you are. So it can be any of the countries in the European Union. And, and each of these countries has its own regulatory body, which is called a, a competent authority. They have different um, 
terminology than we do. And you actually go through a company. So there are independent contractors called notified bodies who will do the review of a new device and then basically make a recommendation to one of these competent authorities. And once you get approval from the competent authority, you're kind of good to go through the whole European Union. You know, you can you can get your approval in your country and then market it in the whole across all of Europe. And the upshot of that is that new devices get approved much faster in Europe. So to go back to that closed loop respirator that I was talking about uh, for premature babies, I have it on good authority that that product is going to be available in Europe pretty soon, you hmm. know, within the next year or two. In the United States, it's who knows, 5, 10, 15 oh, years crazy. out. So there is a real difference, um, and there is technology that's available in Europe. And there have been situations where Americans travel to Europe to get new products. The, the best example is a drug-eluting stent that they use mm. to put into the coronary artery. Those were available in Europe before they were in the United States, and, and a lot of people went over there to have that surgery and get those put in. And, you know, you don't see a, a tremendous wave of um, medical device-related deaths affecting yeah. Europeans. So, so there is, I think that gives good evidence that there is some room to, to streamline this process, you know, not to, not to get rid of safety measures altogether, obviously, but to, to streamline and expedite. Well, too, it, there, it seems like a difference between the long-term impact of a drug you're going to use for the rest of your life versus a device that you might use on, a, on a, one of your patients in the neonatal ICU um, or the NICU and, and that's only going to be used for, you know, a couple of weeks. Sure. I mean, it, but again, I, I guess everyone's it's trying to be careful. Couple weeks. Right, right, yeah, a critical couple of weeks. Um, do do what do you suggest? And I guess I always ask too: Is there anything we can do, just as patients, as citizens, to put more pressure out there where where there needs pressure? I mean, I know President Trump has said he may change some of these um, rules as far as it comes to pharmaceuticals. Has he said anything about uh, medical devices? Yeah, so he hasn't really. Um, I think we're at an interesting moment here, and obviously there's been a lot of noise about healthcare in the United States, mostly centered around insurance. And I would make the argument that there's kind of an alternative path to improving healthcare, where we really improve it. You know, where we really improve the experience of getting healthcare in the hospital, the outcomes, um, the safety, and, and in my mind, part of that really has to do with taking some of the burden off of imperfect, um, well-intentioned doctors and nurses and transferring some of, some of that onto technology, which I think we have the capability to do. So there's a new FDA um, commissioner who's been appointed, Scott Gottlieb. He's actually from, from New York. Um, mm. And he, as you said, he's a proponent of of expediting drug approvals. Uh, he's written pretty widely about his opinion that there's progress to be made there, and that's something that President Trump seems to agree with. Uh, there's been less said about medical devices, and I think it's kind of um, it's an orphan project. You know, it's something that could could use some attention and. 
in 20 years could could make a dramatic difference uh, in hospitals. I mean, the day is coming where a doctor is going to get into his self-driving car yeah. in the morning, open his newspaper, press a button. It's going to bring him to work, him yep. or her to work. And, uh, you know, he or she is then going to spend the day responding to alarms and turning up and down knobs. Yeah. That's really crazy. <laughs> totally is. Well, in fact, I just saw it. A friend of mine that's a a uh, ophthalmologist. I parked at a light, and he pulls up in his um, in his Tesla. Uh-huh. And I look over, and I think, man, that guy's good looking, driving a nice Tesla, and it's my buddy. <laughs> and but you know what? I cannot. So he's already an early adopter of this. Yeah. And yeah. and and again, too, to to also. I mean, I get it. I get it. They don't want doctors to go on autopilot. They don't want the system to go on autopilot. But I even just look at your charting. I look at how much time is just spent charting. And um, it's exhausting. And there's got to be ways to use technology and science. I mean, technology and innovation to enhance the charting process, um, even charting as you go. But, Absolutely. Uh, you know and, what I mean? You know, charting is, charting is error prone. Um Things get misentered and and carried forward, uh, and fail safes there. Uh, technological fail safes can make a real difference in patient outcomes. I mean, I think a difference. You know, when you look at sort of what's happened in technology in in transportation versus what's happened in medicine. One key difference that you can't overlook is that a lot of the technology that we use in our airplanes, our cars, even, you know, our our railways like GPS and things like that, that came out of military research. So there's been this, Mm. this tremendous incubator of technology for technology, I mean, for transportation, uh, in the army and in the air force for decades. Um, and you, can say what you will about military spending, but it has definitely produced innovations that we make use of now in civilian life. And there isn't that same kind of um, technology incubator for mm. medicine. I think that's, you know, that's part of the delay and something that somebody like Scott Gottlieb, who's going to be the new FDA commissioner, it seems like, um, could think about is, is how can you, in the United States, uh, promote a sort of Silicon Valley um, biotechnology innovation incubator for for the for new medical technology oh, yeah. that can save lives. Well, which again, because like you're calling from Columbia, and every all of these nice, incredible hospitals are connected to so many learning institutions as well, and those learning institutions love making money on patents forever, and it just seems like it's it's almost ripe for it. It seems yeah. like why is Columbia not able to more quickly innovate some of its latest stuff and then the patents go with the innovator and the universities and it just creates a, a fund as well. I mean, sure. well, it's set yeah, of for course. it. Yeah, universities would love to do that and do love to do that. I think the um, the roadblock there and what's referred to as sort of as it's referred to as the valley of death in <laughs> uh, in scientific biotechnology development in in academia is once you come up with something um, in the lab or, you know, at a university and get a license for it, if you want to get it to patients, you have to either start or attract a biotechnology firm that's going to take that risk and is going to carry your product all the way through. And like I was saying, small companies are 
risk averse and they recognize that that's a huge undertaking that's going to cost them a lot of money so they might kind of stay away from it and you know the big companies even though they're they're big companies they don't have unlimited resources they have to sort of pick and choose right, yeah. so it's it's not as though you it's not as though you're going to necessarily have companies that are just clamoring to take your product and, and carry it all the way through and make you millions jump on it no right uh, and you got to lower that barrier to entry from the government and and increase innovation powerful Dr. Thomas Hooven, thank you so much for your great insights and uh, keep up the great work there at the NICU um, and uh, the work you're doing as clinical instructor of pediatrics in the division of neonatal perinatal medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you make it through this crazy thing called life. Welcome back, friends. To the Matt Townsend Show. So excited to get back with you. This, um, again, you may not even care about medical devices until you need one. But if we have the ability to do something, why don't we do it for heaven's sakes? Well, we got a lot of rules and regulations. I get it. I get it. We got to be safe. I don't, I'm not saying we shouldn't. However, let's save lives as well. Uh, and, uh, Terry's uh, doing some brainstorming here on a story. You may have heard of a bombing of a bus, uh, a soccer team yes. had their bus bombed in Germany. Yes. There's an interesting twist. What was the twist? Well, a 28-year-old German-Russian citizen took out a five-figure loan to bet that the, the soccer team's called Barossa Drutmund. Their shares would drop. They're a publicly traded business that's he- the soccer team. So he, made, he took out a huge loan. And then he bet that their stock price would drop in the next couple weeks. And he could, like, triple his money. Then he went and attached a bomb to the side of their team bus. Because he figured if somebody maybe got hurt or, you know. Holy cow. I don't know if he he intended for people to die. But, you know, he probably thought if someone was injured and couldn't play, then their stock price would drop. And then because he made this five-figure bet, then he would, you know, reap the windfalls. Of shorting the stock, basically, right? Yeah. And so he had this whole elaborate thing. He attached the said the man came to the attention of investigators because he had made suspicious option purchases for shares in the soccer team, the only top uh, league and Ger- top German soccer club that's listed on their stock exchange the same day as the April 11th attack. So he went and made the purchases uh-huh. of the stock on the same day he made the. The bomb. The bombing, basically. And uh, he took out a loan several tens of thousands of euros the day before the attack, brought a large number of so-called uh, put options, betting on a drop in the share of the team. A significant share price drop could have been expected if a, share, if a player had been seriously injured or even killed in the result of the attack, said prosecutors. And uh, they said they might uh, – I don't know. The whole thing's unbelievable. I mean, so he tried to he tried to you know, use this sort of you know the public's yeah. fear of terrorism so that he could get a stock windfall for ah, his team. That is, I mean, that's going above and beyond to try to play with the market. Jeff, I, I had a feeling Jeff was trying to do that to me, like lower my stock value. Oh, really? Because wow. he brought donuts. You know, he 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 tries to bring me high fat foods, donuts. Are you trying to kill me? Are you trying to lower my stock? Say something. No. <laughs> that wasn't very believable. Okay, interesting. What people will do. The the length they'll go to to, to get their money. Mm, crazy. We'll take a break, friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 
the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We give you the latest, greatest research, Every you know everything we can find to help you understand life a little bit better today. No exception, by the way. Uh, we are going to be talking about why it's so easy to procrastinate and uh, seven ways to break the procrastination habit. It's a pretty, it's, there's some pretty interesting psychology in why you do it. And then a weird payoff that actually is exhausting and that actually makes you procrastinate more. Like if you keep putting off doing the dishes and then every time you have to go in there and the dishes are still there, there's a weird payoff, you know, a, a weird feedback loop that reinforces why you don't want to do them. Because there's a guilt associated with it, but there's a pleasure to avoiding it. So by avoiding it, there's more pleasure versus guilt. So you have to reverse the cycle. And if you reverse the cycle and you start deriving pleasure by getting something done, then you can switch the habit. I understood it's the pleasure like cycle. 10% of that. Yeah. it's Well, and it might just be I'm not eloquent or it might be you really like procrastinating. Are you a procrastinator? You know, not? I, I used to be. Yeah. And so it was all I knew. So I didn't know any different. But now that I'm not as much. Since the accident. Uh, yeah. Uh, it feels like when every once in a while when I procrastinate, when I, you know, we do a puzzle instead of doing all the chores or we sit down and watch a movie instead of doing all the chores, that procrastination feels so much better than just the everyday procrastination ah, that I was doing before. Yeah. That's just – that's like true recreational procrastination. That's good. You put puzzles together? Yeah. We had a puzzle craze a couple weeks ago. Excellent. Good job. Except in my house, if yeah. you don't finish the puzzle on the fir- like on the first sitting, if you wake up in the morning and I come back from work, the girls have completely destroyed the puzzle. But so you I, have to finish it in one sitting. These are the little 20-piece puzzles, right, that they have for kids. No, these are like five to a thousand pieces. <sighs> yeah. See, we do that on a vacation. We might do a puzzle. But it usually ends up being me uh, when my wife and I aren't talking because I didn't want to go on another walk with her. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're being punished. Hopefully she's not listening. I tend to do the worst thing I have to do first. Yeah, that's kind of that's a that's good, a good, that's a good yeah. model. Because then everything else is, you know. Seems easier. Yeah, it's easier that way. But have you ever noticed then you're too exhausted to do the rest? Well, no, worst isn't necessarily the most, you know, physically demanding. It might be like something. the toilets. Yeah. We'll do See, the toilets first. Or you got to mow the lawn versus yeah. do some other yard work. So I don't know. So you've seen that object lesson then with the jar where they put in the ping pong balls first and then yeah. they filled all the, the crevices rocks, with then sand. Then the sand. Yeah. Then the, yeah. In fact, I taught that it's at Franklin Covey for years. I would do the demonstration. But it did take us about six months to paint her living room one year. Did you oh. just like do it like one line at a time? Well, we'd get into it in about an hour. We're like, all right, we're done. We're tired. Painting is my anymore. least favorite chore. Yeah. See, so there now, are some things you can delegate too. We'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll find a guy. All of that ahead, by the way, we are also still celebrating Thank You Thursday. Thank you very much. What? Yeah, you're welcome, Jeff. What uh, do you – I didn't say come, anything. Come again. Huh? He said thank you. You heard it, right, Terry? Vaguely. Yeah. I didn't say that. Didn't was, say what? Thank you very much. Yeah, you just said it right there. Hmm? Huh? 
So today's the day we just thank everybody that matters to us, everybody around us. Thank your bus driver. Thanks your, thank your taxi cab driver. Thank your parole officer, for heaven's sakes. Thank everybody. Parole officer. I was looking at Jeff when I okay. said that. Well, Thank well. the person giving you a whooping. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you. May I have another? <laughs> uh, Prime Rib Day also today. Get out there. Celebrate Prime Rib Day. And then also Cardiovascular Disease Day. <laughs> we'll be celebrating that tomorrow. All that straight ahead. But first, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What's going on that we need to be worried about? President Donald Trump's team boasted Wednesday that its tax cut plan would lighten Americans' financial burdens, ignite economic growth, and vastly simplify tax filing. He wants you to be able to do your taxes on a postcard. Yes, I agree. Be just quick. Just fill out fill out some quick information and move on. You don't have to fill out you know hours worth of paperwork. Perfect. Or call a guy. Yet the proposal so far remains short of vital details, including how it would be paid for. And based on the few specifics spelled out so far, most experts suggested it would add little growth to while while swelling the budget deficit and potentially handing large windfalls to wealthier taxpayers. Trump's plan would replace the current seven income tax brackets with three. The top bracket would drop from 39% to 35%. It would also slash the corporate rate from 35 to 15%, huh. a boon to most companies, even though most companies don't pay the full tax now. Right. They're, they're all, there's like 20% that pay the 35 Losers. I'm probably one of those. Could be. The Senate Judiciary Committee announced Wednesday the FBI Director James Comey will testify during a hearing on May 3rd. The hearing was reportedly announced for FBI oversight purposes and is not necessarily related to the ongoing congressional investigations into the alleged Russian involvement in the 2016 presidential election. The Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism announced this week that former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates and former Director of National Intelligence uh, James Clapper will be testifying at May 8th hearing. So we will find out more of probably nothing of note. Yeah. But but you know what? It's exciting. It's exciting because that's good TV. Must see TV. And as of yesterday, I was reading that the Senate hadn't had, they didn't schedule any interviews yet. They didn't have enough staffing to actually do the the uh, proper investigation. So What's now, the Senate doing? They brought in some people because the Senate was the one that was supposed I know, to be working together. They were the together. strong one. That they were together. This wasn't political. Yeah. So now they're fixing it really fast. Okay. Uh, Wednesday afternoon, the House Freedom Caucus officially announced its support for a revision of the version of the American Health Care Act, a.k.a. Trump Care or Ryan Care, depending on what you want to call it. Yeah. The announcement comes after weeks of attempts to revive the previously failed Obamacare repeal legislation in the House and following negotiations that produced a proposed amendment from Congressman Tom MacArthur for the cause uh, to declare for the caucus to declare its support. This means its new incarnation of Trump Care now has at least 80 percent of House Freedom Caucus members saying yes. That caucus said in a statement that the retooled Trump Care now has its support, even though the revised version still does not fully repeal Obamacare. And a vote on this new version could happen on Friday. Woo woo! So that Trump can go to his his rally on Saturday and and say he got talk, a lot done. What I did, yeah. Uh, finally, United Airlines will raise the limit on its payment to customers who are asked to give up their seats on oversold flights to $10,000, the carrier announced Thursday. The rule change came as part of the company's report into a uh, video of a passenger being dragged off the flight in Chicago. The airline also vowed to increase training for its gate attendants and flight attendants and no longer calls on police officials to deal with similar situations. Prior to raising the compensation limit, United's ceiling on compensation for an overbooked flight was $1,350. Additionally, United said it would send displaced passengers or crew members to nearby airports 
uh, booked, book them on a different airline or arrange for additional car transportation to get them to their destination. So they didn't even Excellent. go to their ceiling uh, amount, right? Yeah. The ceiling was like 1500 something like that. But the 13 was their ceiling, but they got to 800 they said, on that flight where they pulled the guy off. Yeah, but how many what's going to take to get you in the ceiling? $400. And apparently that was the limit. That was as far as they were told they could go. Even though the the you know officially there's this other number that was higher, they stopped it. Yeah, but wait till you're the guy that just gave a seat away for ten grand. Yeah, you're gonna be <laughs> absolutely. You are fired. How much did you, how much did you? I just went I just went straight to ten. I didn't want to dicker with him. In the door, <laughs> ten grand out there. Yeah. So doing that, That's not crazy. bringing the police in because the police kind of escalate the whole thing. Yeah, taser. But now the police are saying the guy threw a punch. Yeah. Stories are you know. um, By the way, uh, because now the big joke is that guy's seat was the least safe seat on the plane. Uh, there's a new there's a new um, Huffington oh, Post that. That, yeah. uh, travel guide out that says the safest seat on an airplane. Do you want to know where it is? Where do you think is the safest? If an airplane crashes, where is the safest seat on the airplane? And Don't. you can't say the bathroom. Dang it. Because that's where I'd be. So you won't be able to get in because I would be in there with it locked. I don't know. Over the wings. In uh, the arms of my wife. Oh. Oh, that's beautiful. Right. Not true. But Not safe nice. for her, by the way. <laughs> you would crush her. That's the problem. Uh, air travel. It's, by the way, the safest form of transportation. Let's be very clear. Zero people died from plane crashes on U.S. certified scheduled airlines uh, for the seventh year in a row. So our airlines don't crash without a reason. I mean, without some weird intervention like terrorism, Um, uh, usually in the United States. Experts estimate, though, that uh, your odds of perishing in a plane crash are well into the millions. So it's not it's you know, if the plane's going down, you're in trouble. So here are, though, what they have found. They, They because the FAA won't do the study. They don't want to do a study like this. Right. But uh, it doesn't mean others haven't. Um, The National Transportation Safety Board doesn't keep seat-related statistics, but two major media outlets have. And in 2007, Popular Mechanics took uh, – used the NTSB data and analyzed it, and this is what they found. Um, Passengers that sit over the wings – your idea, Terry – have a 56 percent survival rate. Hmm. So – you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. 56 is really good. Uh, the the highest survival rates would be those that are behind the wings. Okay. The tail of the plane. So those that paid less for their seats and are crammed underneath two armpits, that's where I would have been. <laughs> right. And I think I would have been safe. I would have been the survivor because I was neatly tucked underneath the armpits of two really soft, lovely men. In the TV show Lost, there was an entire section of the plane that landed elsewhere on the island, and those people yeah. survived was also. Was that the tail? So uh-huh. they, were, they, were, yeah. they were in the tail section, so this proves true. 69% of the people <laughs> it was on TV. have a yeah. 69% survival <laughs> rate, and it was on TV, so you know it's real. Right. But you really want to be able to look out the window and see the wings. Okay. That's kind of where you, you know you're in a safer zone. Right. Uh, least safe place is to be at the front of the plane. But the pilot. <laughs> First class. Yeah, yeah. They'll, sure, you'll go down with your drink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we won't have our drink nice yet. Nice hot towel yeah, or something. Yeah, you'll have a nice yeah. hot towel. Yeah. Maybe a little dinner. Mm. Whatever. 
you'll die with a full stomach. The fancy peanuts, not just the mm-hmm. salted ones. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Fifty. Uh, those up front have only a forty-nine percent survival rate. Ooh, twenty percent less than those in the back. Yep. So don't ever be mad that you're pushed to the back. Yeah. Don't, they're saving your life. They may very well be saving your life. Right, right. Yeah. That's interesting information. Plus, you know, uh, if you're on United, you have a lot higher likelihood of being dragged off the plane. Speaking of United, yeah. they had a problem this week. What? A three-foot-long giant rabbit traveling from London Heathrow to Chicago's O'Hare Airport oh, on United was found dead in the cargo hold upon arrival. Though its owner tells The Sun a pre-flight vet's check revealed Simon was fit as a fiddle. You dirty wabbit. Something very strange has happened, and I want to know what it is, she says. I've seen rabbits all around the world, and nothing like this has ever happened before. Huh. So they're investigating, but so a rabbit died. A conspiracy. A giant bunny was That's... fit as a fiddle, but not so much. There's someone on the wing. Something. Wow. Interesting. Maybe there's something on the wing that mm. got the rabbit. A gremlin of some kind. Um, that's sad. Then they show the picture of them the holding up the. Yeah, it's huge. It's, the bunny. It's like. Well, I think we know what happened to the rabbit. What happened? Uh, heart attack. Probably. That thing. Yeah, that thing was an obese. A little, little heavy. I've seen a lot of rabbits. That was an obese rabbit. It needed some more cardio. That's sad for the lady, though. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's her business. She ships large rabbits around the globe. So she might just really? see it as a product, not necessarily yeah. as a living thing. But you know, but again, whichever. United in the air. You yeah. know, United having issues back in the air. You know what uh, I just noticed? What? No, Caitlin Thomas today. I know. You see, here's the deal: we're losing a lot of our producers. We're losing a lot of our. They're graduating. They're moving on. Some have internships. Some just have uh, community service to go give. Um. A lot of stuff going on. Because of allegedly other taking issues. things that didn't belong to them that at the radio That may be where station. Palakiko's been lately. I'm not sure. But <laughs> um, anyway, so what we've been trying to do is put together some more, some more segments on the show, get some more guests, get some more um, – what do we call them? Um, contributors. Contributors. And I've, I've actually delegated the responsibility to do this to Jeff because he's, he's really got very little on his plate right now. Really? He's got a baby due in a month. He's starting a new segment on our show. He's starting a show on our show. He's a busy man, but I thought I'd just give him one more thing. So, Jeff, you've been kind of going through the files, going through all the applications, and today we're going to preview another possible segment yeah, that and this, we may run. This is actually people. more than a segment. This is actually a full-blown show that was pitched to uh, BYU TV. Okay. Uh, in the pitch meeting, there weren't really a lot of takers, fans of this show. Okay. Except one. Don Shaline really believed in this show. Yeah. But, you know, he couldn't find any love in the room for this show. So he decided to take it down here to us and see if maybe it could get some life on radio. Yeah. yeah. He brought it to the basement. Yes. And uh, w- and so so this is this is just a taste of the show, huh? And this is... You know how IT people are are very smart. Oh yeah. They sometimes they're a little condescending too to yeah. us people that don't know anything about computers. Well, this IT person um, has a little bit of that, huh? No, it's kind of the opposite. In fact, the IT guy he takes the intelligence out of Intel. You can't spell inept without IT, and he can't spell. 
Though he may see my feet, please don't control or delete the wonderful, lovable, flighty, itty guy. Oh, goodness me. My computer's acting up again. Oh, and I've got to have this file on the boss's desk in the next hour, or he's going to have my head. Oh, what am I going to do? Is someone having internet technology problems? Oh, hello, IT guy. It's my computer. It's doing all sorts of weird things. I'd go and get my computer from home, but I lost my key to the house. Uh, have you looked on your computer keypad? That's got a home key on it. Can you just take a look at my computer? I think there must be a missing chip or something. Missing chip? But I haven't even opened this bag of delicious Doritos yet. Well, uh, let me take a look here. Are you sure you know what you're doing? Absolutely. So, um, that show has everything. You've got a theme song, you've got product placement, Last you've track. got catchphrases. Absolutely. Yeah, kind of stupid cliche. Well, it's not a cliche because, like I said, usually IT people are very capable and smart, and this one is not. Yeah. So is that the twist? The twist is this is an IT guy that's just goofy. And is an idiot. Dense. Yeah. Yeah. Is not good at his job. I don't know about that one. I mean, the laugh track, I think, was a little distracting. No, that was a live audience. I doubt it. No, uh, I really doubt it. It was filmed here in Studio C. Did you did BYU. you did you actually laugh once during any of that? Well, my mic was off. So yeah, I was laughing. It was hysterical. So you like this guy. Do you like him more than Bob Moss and the happy the happy I will say I'm planter. not as big of a fan of it as Don Shaline. Don Shaline was like gushing. <laughs> he Yeah. He he you know how everybody always says, oh, my gosh, you got to listen to this. It's so funny. It's yeah. the funniest thing you've ever Is heard. He like that? And whenever people do that, it's never the funniest thing. Yeah, no. That – But I, absol- I have a hard time believing absolutely. Don. Yeah, that, that. Was, that was a clever catchphrase. Was it? It just seemed a little cheesy. Hmm. Well, there was a whole studio full of people that thought it was funny. Was that his family? Was this, was this a family reunion? <laughs> I don't know, man. We're having such a hard time trying to find our next uh, contributors. So we have Bob Moss in the running. What's the name of his show? The Happy The Happy Garden. Happy Garden, where it's gar- it's plant therapy, where we listen more to our plants. So it's a lot of listening. Got the airplane comedian. Got the airplane comedian, really, who is who really? I think is just a flight attendant for Southwest. Right? No, I don't think he is. And then we've got now we've got goofball it. The IT guy. Oh, sorry. The IT guy. Okay. Well, let's just keep trying, Jeff. Just keep trying. Who's at the top of the list for you right now? It just looks like we – I'm going to have to do more work. Like I'm going to have to just (laughs) do more of my own show instead of bringing on contributors at this rate. I mean I do like Bob Moss. He's – I just think he's great. He's one of my favorite. Isn't he a painter on PBS? No, I don't think so. Okay. 
Uh, we'll I think a- he does paint some some of his plants, though. Oh, maybe that's Bob Ross. Yeah. Uh, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about procrastination, seven ways to break the habit. Stick with us. Habits are notoriously hard to break, and they can be tricky to overcome when procrastination is involved. There are good reasons to put something off, like maybe giving us more time to make a decision or the possibility that the problem might resolve itself. The problem is when we just justify it too much. And it can become crippling and affect our performance. So why do we procrastinate? Here to discuss why we do it and seven strategies we can use to break the habit of procrastination is Dr. Seth Gillihan, a clinical assistant professor of psychology and a clinical practitioner. Seth, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Now, now Seth, have you invented the magic bullet that we can all just, uh, you know, have shot into us that will eliminate procrastination? Oh, man, I wish. No, what, what, a, what we're aiming to do is, is raise our batting averages, so we're never going to get rid of procrastination entirely. That's probably a good thing. But we can certainly uh, decrease the chances that we'll put things off in a way that it costs us in the long run. I think we've all had a taste of it, and either, you know, we either do it a lot, you know, or we might live with somebody that does, or we've felt the stress of it. So, so what, give us a kind of a background. What, why do we procrastinate? Well, usually for one of two reasons, and, and really one overarching reason, because it's whatever it is we imagine doing that we need to do, it's sort of, we think it's going to be painful in some way. So, and I think we're, it's probably safe to say that you and I are here because our ancestors were really good at avoiding bad things. Yeah, true. Yeah, we've got a good history. <laughs> That's right. Great track record. So, so if we're imagining doing something and thinking like, yeah, yeah I should probably take care of that thing, and I think about doing it, maybe it's going to be tedious or annoying or boring or something. And so I say, I'll just do it later. <sighs> I get some kind of relief, like, all right, I don't have to do it now. And even if it's not good that I'm putting it off, I still feel that relief. And that relief can be powerfully rewarding and powerfully addicting. Because when we're rewarded, we get that sense of relief, and we're more likely to repeat that behavior in the future. And that can just build up into a, into a really strong habit over time. So the, the, the big one is the, kind of the fear of the pain uh, of the whole thing. We, we just don't want to have to be stressed about it. What's, a, what's a, the other reason was well, about, about yeah, I, I how we do? A, yeah, I, th- I think it's a, it's a similar type of pain we're avoiding, but it's a, it's a specific type that's worth mentioning, and that's the, this fear that I'm not going to do it well. So if I'm afraid I'm going to screw it up somehow, then it's going to make sense. Like, yeah, maybe I'll just... Maybe I'll wait until I know exactly how to do it and how to good job, do a good job, and then I'll start. And the problem, of course, is until we actually determine to do it, we usually don't figure out how it is that we're, that we're really going to do it and do it well. Hmm. And it's, I guess this is human nature. It's human nature. It's built into us, including those of us who study and treat procrastination. <laughs> it's universal. So even you who studies it and treats it, you still battle. Yeah, I, I do to some extent. Um, I, I probably fall more on the side of what some people call procrastinators, that somebody takes care of things as quickly as possible because they don't want to have them uh, looming over them. Huh. Um, but certainly there are there are plenty of things, probably on a daily basis, where I, I find myself saying, like, yeah, 
I'll do that later when I feel like doing it. And of course, I finally end up doing it because I have to, not because I feel like doing it. Right. Do Do you sense that being human um, even makes this worse because we also use our brain to then justify why we procrastinate? Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's part of what goes into the treatment is addressing those kinds of thoughts that can kind of justify or rationalize, yeah, I'll, I'll do this later, It'll, I'll do a better job of it later, I'm too tired to do it now, um, I'll, I'll be more inspired later on. And, and sometimes those thoughts are right, but other times they, they lead us to, uh, to avoid when we don't need to. It's so funny how we, and yet, you know, we go back to it and it, it, it actually gets, the procrastination is in a way made it harder. It seems like harder to, to actually do the thing. Well, yeah, because maybe now the task is heavier. It's bigger. It's That's now right. there's more pressure. That's right. Yeah, if it's a if it's a term paper, maybe now I've got less time to do it, so I'm feeling even more stressed and blocked with my writing. If it's uh, taking the trash out, now it's even heavier and messier. So yeah, it can it can build up uh, both the pressure and the task. I I really loved in your article. Um, the the explanation in a way of the process because there also is there's kind of a psychological payoff um, and 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 cost that that keeps us stuck it seems like in in procrastination and the pattern of procrastinating maybe walk us through what happens to us emotionally as as we as we you know as we don't do something hard and we go do something fun sure so. Um... Maybe I'm imagining. I mean, this is this is uh, in the recent past for most of, most of us. I got to do my taxes, right? Right. Ugh. What a what a daunting task. Maybe I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it. Some of you know things change every year. Seems overwhelming. I could do that, or I could uh, watch another YouTube video or uh, keep watching the TV. And so, rather than than having that sense of anxiety and tension and uncertainty and, and self-doubt that it might go with paying taxes, I feel, I feel more relaxed. I get that sense of, of relief. And so, so psychologists like to name stuff. They call that negative reinforcement. So, so it's reinforcing because it's made the avoiding behavior more likely in the future. And it's called negative because there was that, that bad thing I'm trying to avoid, that uh, pain and suffering of, of going through the tax process, and I've removed that bad experience, and so I've been negatively reinforced. Parenthetically, it's not what, what uh, most people call negative reinforcement, which people think is spanking is that, but technicality. So it makes it more likely we're going to do exactly that thing in the future, um, and, and we, what we don't get, what we're avoiding while we, we do that is not only the, the discomfort, but also the reward we would get from doing it, from finding, uh, all right, it was annoying, but I got it done. It felt good. I feel satisfied. I'm really enjoying my leisure time now that I've got that out of the way. Yeah, and it's not cycling in your head. So, so really, it's um, you. You have you have these weird reinforcers going on that I guess are even deeper than the thinking. Right? It's now kind of the feeling we have about it. We dread yeah. the dishes or the taxes. And so we don't want to do it. And so when we then find we are excited about the next YouTube video, even though deep down we still have a dread of what we have to go do. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a great point to make is that, you know, distinguishing between the, the thoughts and what we may be aware of, like I, I know I don't want to do this, 
and the, the kind of underlying reinforcement that I'm getting on that kind of affective or emotional level where I'm, I'm feeling, you know, even unconsciously that sense of relief and, and not realizing that what I'm doing is building in a need for that kind of relief. And, and some people, you know, we probably all know some of them or, or can relate to ourselves, it's a really, really strong tendency, almost a, I mean, a habitual sort of, as it just restates the word, but, but something we do almost, almost religiously. Yeah. And, and in a way, we, we're, we, this may be why we're so stressed, because you're not f- fooling anybody. I mean, you're, you're fooling yourself in the minute, but in the back of your head, you're still running the program that you've got to get that done. <laughs> You get, and so it's got to create a, a weird uh, kind of, you know, a weird um, dilemma for you because part of your body is like, just get it done. And the other part is like, no, just avoid it. What, yes. what, what's the long-term impact of, of such cognitive dissonance going on? Oh, man, yeah, it's, a, it's a, yeah, the worst of both worlds, really. I'm not getting it done and I'm not enjoying not getting it done sort of like an unvacation. Yeah. So so long term these I mean it can build up into uh you know major stress, much more stressful than than just doing the thing to begin with and also poor performance, you know, I'm rushed to do things at the end or you know the boss boss has given me an ultimatum so I just got to get him something so I turn in shoddy work and then you know pay the consequences for that which by the way doesn't make me any more likely to want to jump in and do it next time because I've, I've kind of been punished for doing the task only because it was done after procrastinating. Hmm. Oh, man. And again, this adds up, and I think we all do it to some degree or another. And it could be, you know, it could be big things like paying your taxes. It could be just subtle little things like calling that friend who just had some bad news delivered. And yeah. yet you keep procrastinating because it's hard and you don't know what to say. And But then you start feeling guilty after weeks of not calling. Oh, man, he just reminded me of having done something very similar myself. I should probably contact that person. Mm. But that's right. It can happen at work. It can happen in our personal lives. Um, yeah, and even small things. And we do build up this habit, you know, if we walk by that shirt on the floor once and say, like, eh, I don't feel like picking it up now. Why should we do it the next time? Because we've seen ourselves not do it. And so we've, we've witnessed ourselves. So we're like, okay, maybe I won't pick it up because I didn't then. Why should I do it now? What's different now than then? Mm. Is, there, is there kind of a makeup of... The, the the average traditional procrastinator do they have do they suffer more anxiety are they more depressive are they you know do they are they different in any way or can it really just be all of us yeah it's interesting it certainly can be all of us it it, it does you do see it more in I mean someone who has uh, you know attention deficit hyperactivity disorder ADHD is uh, you know probably probably uh, really battles procrastination. Um, and people procrastinate for different reasons. You know, there are people who do it because they want to avoid doing the, the whatever the thing is. Other people avoid because they're maybe really perfectionistic and are afraid they're not going to do it perfectly, and so put it off for that reason. So, so it can vary a lot, but it ends up looking looking the same. And you know, the boss doesn't know you're a perfectionist. Uh, that's why you're you're avoiding. Boss just might might think you're just lazy. Uh huh. Yeah, and they and because we do we do make judgments of people that tend to procrastinate. We do, and that's one of the things I try to do in in my work with uh, in this area is to minimize that judgment around it because it's 
it doesn't seem to be helpful. It seems to add to the pressure and, and, and can also add to a kind of resistance to it. You know, when I want to do something and I also don't want to do it, and I've got a parent or a boss or a therapist to tell me you have to do this, then that's going to that's going to strengthen, my, you know, digging in my heels and saying, like, well, no, I don't. I'm going to yeah. choose not to do it. I mean, even even in the, the research literature, there are these terms like uh, like self-regulatory failure. That's one one huh. word for, or one phrase for procrastination. It's such a, it's a bit heavy-handed. So t- try to lighten up on that and say, look, you know, this, this is for you. If you want to do it, here are some tools. If not, you know, procrastination is a choice. Boy, is it, um, I guess, as we as we get into this, and let's take a break, Seth. We can come back and discuss your tools. You've got some awesome strategies about how to get us to kind of rethink this and, and make some real changes. Um, it's, it really is. There's a, there's a way out of this, and I can almost see that if you just did one or two of Seth's um, solutions, it could, it could maybe tip the whole thing over and make it so much easier for you to uh, overcome your procrastination habit. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world one habit at a time. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about procrastination and the seven ways to break the habit with Dr. Seth J. Gillahan. He is um, a clinical assistant professor of psychology in the psychiatry department at the University of Pennsylvania, has published research articles and book chapters on the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety and depression, and maintains a practice, a clinical practice, in Haverford, Pennsylvania. He also um, has written a wonderful article on psychology today, why it's easy to procrastinate, and seven habits or seven ways to break the habit. Seth, thank you again for being with us. Good to be here, Matt. Thank you. So uh, let's get into some of the the ways we can break the habit. What uh, what what have you seen as you work with people that are dealing with procrastination? What what do you see is the hardest part about breaking the procrastination habit? You know, the biggest biggest obstacle seems to be that the task just is is too big. You know, it, it's daunting. I think of it like uh, you know driving to California. Like I have no idea how to drive to California. I, I, I know, but I know I know we can get there, and it starts with getting in my car. I know I can get in my car, and I know I can get to the end of my driveway. I know I, I know how to get to the end of my street. Mm. So we can break things up into those in, into smaller tasks that feel doable, and and, and we break it up in, into as small as as necessary. So when uh, you know someone is working on on a task, we've broken it up, and they're still not able to get started. Then we say, well, look, let's let's break this up even more. You know, with, with paying your taxes, what a, what a daunting task. How about you uh, pull all your receipts together for the year? Is that something you feel like you can do? That's simple. It's manageable. So one of the rules is create manageable pieces. And, and just, I mean, I guess it's just chunking it down to something you can do. That's right. And then I like, I like to, whether you're doing it for myself or working with someone Take a look at what you've, you've planned, and, and by the way, write down the plan. That's another part of making it easier is actually being able to see on paper, okay, here are the steps. I, mean, I know what the process is going to be. And then for each step, ask yourself, can I do this? Can I 
find the receipts? Can I get the forms that I need? If that's too much, then say, all right, what, what's the, how can I break that into, into smaller hmm. subtasks that feel doable? So, so really cutting it up into, into sort of bite-sized pieces. And because there are some people that will try to overwhelm it, flood it, and see it as, you know, it's I've got to drive all the way to California. But, you know, really what you first need to do is just find a map. <laughs> and, I mean, really, because it's yeah. – once you, once you just back it down to its simplest thing, then we can just slowly start chipping away at it. Uh, creating manageable pieces. Another tool you suggest is to decide to start – uh, decide to start. You just got to decide you're going to do it. That's right. So again, if we're waiting, like, yeah, I don't know how to do this. Let me let me wait until I know how to do it. Then we, we may never get started because part of the process of doing the task is figuring out how to do it. So I'll, I'll find myself, you know, I get an email in my inbox and think, oh boy, I don't know how I'm going to respond to this person. So I put it off and I answer all my other emails and it just sits there and I feel less and less inclined to answer it. And finally when we do something like that, it's because we just decide, like, all right, I'm going to do this. And as soon as we decide, then we're in it. Then we start problem solving. We figure out how to do it. Maybe we break it down into pieces. We do the research we need to figure it out. So so just deciding is such a powerful way to break the habit. And, this, and these are things I can see. I mean, it'd be great to be able to fly to Pennsylvania and have you do this, but it seems like this is something that a parent could do. They could sit down, like, I don't know how to do my Eagle project. So great, let's let's decide if we're going to start. And if we're yeah. going to start, okay, let's do it. So let's sit down. One of the things you you talk about is make space, because I've always noticed when I was writing my dissertation, I would always spend more time cleaning my office or going through my emails instead yeah. of doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's right. Yeah, isn't it funny how, how it worked? It would otherwise be annoying, can be so welcome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let me Phew. do these dishes. Let me just take care of all the dishes. Why do we right. do that? Why is that? Well, I guess in, in those cases, it's the lesser of two evils. You know, if, if, I'm, really, if I'm worried about something like a thesis, I mean, having been there, what a, what a huge task that is. There's Ugh. so much I mean, sort of lore built around it, like a uh, thesis mammoth thing and so the the uncertainty the the terror that can go along with that is is so i mean who who wouldn't prefer to do something easy and like dishes ah dishes <laughs> so easy. i know how to do the dishes and they're done and look at that it's complete whereas you know thesis will work on that for years and it still still may not be done so true so true um so you suggest we decide to start uh make a space to do it? Is that just cleaning off the space? And then do we leave that space there so it it doesn't get interrupted and we can keep going back to the space? Ideally, yeah, it's nice to not have to, to recreate that work to clear the space. Um, and, and the space it can also be uh, sort of mental space, you know, creating a distraction-free zone, getting, you know, uh, closing our the tab where our email is so we don't constantly go back there. That can be such a Sort of again from personal experience, a kind of nervous habit of like, not sure how I'm gonna how I'm gonna finish this paragraph here and this article I'm writing. Let me just check my email, and if it's not there, then I I'm forced to sit and and figure out how to do it. Hmm, yeah, that's it. I mean, and it, it, I mean the space could also be just the space a few pages in a book in a you know a notebook. It could be 
but have it where you can just keep going back to it, consistently referring to it. Uh, Some other ideas you've brought up are alarms, and I think this is a really important tool, setting alarms and reminders. We now have all the technology in the world to make it happen. Uh, How do you suggest we go about using our tech, our our phones, and other things to, to make sure we're getting it done? Yeah, there are a number of ways to do it, and 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 by the way, for for some reason, I think a lot of us have have uh, kind of object to using these kinds of props, thinking like, no, I should just be able to do it, or it shouldn't be that complicated, or I I just have to make myself do it. But they, they can really be uh, be essential in in uh, keeping us on task. So so having everything in one place is is a big part of this. So having a you know a single calendar that has our tasks in it, so we know what it is that we, that we need to be working on. Setting reminders, you know, setting an alarm that tells us when when to start working, um, and if it's easy for you know, the alarm to go off, but you know, maybe we're in the middle of something that we thought we would be done by then, we want to keep working on it. So it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. It's easy to forget, so if we turn off an alarm, you know, setting another alarm so we come back to it. There's also this, this nice system uh, that some people use. It goes by different names. One is the, the Pomodoro technique. So it's basically just breaking up our tasks into blocks where we work and then blocks where we have a little break. So typically like 25 minutes working, five minutes off, and there's, a, of course, an app for that. Wow. So And so you plan it that way, but then when you take your time off, I guess you got to be careful that you don't slide into some other ritual, like, I will now go begin a Netflix series. <laughs> yes, that's right. So planning carefully, things that aren't going to be overly... Uh, addictive and absorbing, so we get stuck in them. But I think there can be a, a kind of, uh, you know, an important part of this approach. And you know, if you use an app for it, is that there's a there are timers on both ends. There's a timer to end your work block, and there's a timer to end your break block. Hmm. And so knowing that I've got a, a finite amount of of break can help us really enjoy that time because we know that it's that it's going to end. That we're not we're not cheating in some way. This is actually like I've assigned myself to take this time, and when it's over, then we go right back. And we know that the break blo- the work block is also finite. So yeah. we're going to be more, more focused during that time, like, shoot, I've only got 15 more minutes to work on this until I have to take a break. I better, I better focus here. And honestly, I think having a success at being able to take the break and take the – and come back after the break and, and follow the timers is probably a great way to build trust in yourself, confidence – and belief that you can do something and, and keep integrity. And really, Matt, those, those things can be overstated, how important those are. I mean, especially if, if I'm someone who, is, who, who sees myself as a procrastinator and feels bad about that. Uh, this comes up a lot in uh, ADHD, uh, mm-hmm. where these kinds of things can be chronic. And there are studies showing that uh, you know, if you treat people with medication or you give the medication plus this kind of cognitive behavioral uh, uh, approach that they do better with the CBT approach. Their symptoms are, are uh, you know, some studies co- cut in half. Wow. Versus about 20% in, with medication only. And not only their symptoms go down, their their ADHD symptoms, but they also feel less anxious and less depressed. Yeah, but yeah. I think, be- if I think exactly the reason you're talking about starting to see myself as someone who can take care of what I need to do. Oh, it's amazing. It really is. And um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's just we need to know, right? We need to know what's going on. And then, like you're saying, build a plan. Uh, you you bring in alarms. You also build in accountability um, and rewards. Uh, 
overall, just as we kind of only have a minute left with you, Seth, what would you say is the one thing? So if somebody's out there today and they're struggling with procrastination, they really want to change. If there was one thing they could do today that would make the biggest impact to, to get started on this, what's that one thing? I, I always start with you know picking a task and breaking it down into manageable pieces and, and just deciding to start with the first one. Just as, as uh, Suzanne Phillips said to me once, break the, break the wrapper, right? Just open, open the package uh, and just, just get started. And in the process, accept that it's, it's going to be, it's probably going to be uncomfortable to get started. Yeah, it's hard. This is a hard thing. And part of it is, I guess we've got to learn to do the hard things. With Seth Gillahan, we appreciate you and your great work. Um, Why It's Easy to Procrastinate, Seven Ways to Break the Habit. You can look up uh, more of Seth's writings on psychology today. And all of us, let's just figure out what's the one thing we can stop procrastinating today. And make the choice. Get in. Decide to start. Just chop it up. Start doing it. Let's start finding the victories in our lives. Powerful, powerful stuff. We will take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, everything we can to help you be the person you want to be. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. One of the things we like to do on the show, too, is what we call Matt Townsend News, or Empty News for short. Uh, Some of the news you you may not normally hear out there because not every news station is covering it, but we care, so we cover it. I've got a few stories um, just about professional courtesy, maybe professionalism. You you almost wonder if if doctors, dentists, maybe we're losing our edge. Everyone's doing all these things to to get clients, and I don't know. It just seems like some things are slipping. Um, here's a little uh, a story of a dentist that pulled a tooth while riding a hoverboard. <laughs> Prosecutors say an Alaska dentist charged with Medicaid fraud pulled a sedated patient's tooth while riding a hoverboard. Seth Lockhart was charged with 17 counts of Medicaid fraud after prosecutors say he billed Medicaid $1.8 million last year for IV sedation used in procedures that didn't call for it. Prosecutors say in an indictment that the investigators found a video of Lockhart's phone uh, on Lockhart's phone of him riding a hoverboard while extracting a sedated patient's tooth. That's crazy. They say he texted the video to his office manager and joked that it was a new standard of care. Unbelievable. Prosecutors say the investigator uh, contacted the patient and she told them she was unaware that Lockhart was riding the hoverboard while operating on her. And for some reason, he pulled the wrong tooth. And what she doesn't know is he was also watching Netflix at the time. Mm. Ah! Sounds like you got the wrong tooth there. Yeah, you got to pull the right tooth, but on a, it's nothing harder than pulling a tooth, you know, narrowing in on the tooth when you're on the hoverboard. You bring up a good point, too. These business owners feel like they need to do whatever they can to get customers. Like I've been outside your office uh, from yeah. time to time, and you're out there with one of those signs, uh-huh. like doing the dance yeah. and spinning, spinning it around. It's not easy. Yeah. And do you know how hard it is to 
to do it in a hot dog costume. Oh, it gets so hot yeah. in those things. It's the weird thing is then people come into my shop and they're like, "So, uh, where are the hot dogs?" You need to maybe get a, a hot dog costume that's not made of leather. That might yeah. help. Yeah, yeah. You don't have any idea how much talc powder I go through to get into that leather hot dog suit. Uh, another <laughs> professional problem, um, and it seems obvious, but uh, Michigan authorities are giving the feedback. Uh, please do not perform liposuction in barns. It, it, it seems like, you know, obvious, but authorities in Michigan say a doctor may have endangered patients and public by performing liposuctions in a barn, the AP reports. Health officials said they learned from sheriff's investigators that the doctor was performing the procedures in the building in the town of Glen. County health officers warned people Friday to seek immediate medical care if they had surgery at a site and um, show any signs of infection, fever, redness, or swelling. The health department says the building doesn't have a certificate of occupancy and isn't approved for any business activities, by the way, let alone medical procedures. Sheesh. The sheriff's department expressed concern that the doctor may not have followed appropriate biohazard standards. Was that doctor raised in a barn or something? Seriously. I mean, just do it in your kitchen like all the rest of us. Wasn't there a story about a cow kicking over a a lamp? A cow kicking a lamp. And it started a whole fire. That's how the whole Chicago fire began. Uh, he didn't kick a lamp, but he jumped over the moon. Oh, yeah. That's it. Yeah, that was it. Um, here's some audio, by the way, of the liposuction. Yeah, just do it in the kitchen. If you wake up from liposuction and this, these are the first sounds you hear. These are actually doctors performing liposuction on the animals. Because those cows, they need to shed a few pounds. Those things are huge. Anyway, by the way, this is what happens when people go to watch their doctor pop pimples on YouTube. Then all of a sudden, liposuction in a barn doesn't sound like such a bad idea. Let's do it in the barn. Those videos are hypnotic. (laughs) Jeez. They're disgusting. Uh, That's hour number two of the program, folks. Stick with us. We are going to help you. If you just give us time, we're going to help you. Having fun, yet uh, getting stuff done. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, the program where we give you the latest, the greatest, everything you need to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome to the program. Hour number three of the show. Again, if you have missed any of our uh, earlier hours because, you know, you were working. Hello. Go to iTunes. Go to TuneIn. You're not going to want to miss it. We've talked about a lot of interesting stuff, um, including how to not procrastinate last hour. And you got to learn those skills. Seriously. Your spouse called. They need you to change. You especially, Jeffrey. When I said your spouse called, you looked guilty. Like you looked at me like, what? If my spouse called, it will be because she needs me to change a diaper in about a month. 
when our yeah. baby boy is here. Or she right doesn't now want it to would be that. you get a, you got to get here. The baby's coming. A month away. Sure, things happen. Hmm. Things happen. We'll get to uh, we'll get to we'll, we've got to start a new countdown. We should probably have a thirty day countdown to Baby Arama. Hmm. Don't you think? <laughs> Why are you laughing at your child? I'm sorry. Countdown to Baby Arama. Thirty days out. Is that where we are? Ish, ish, thirty-ish days out for the babyish delivery-ish of cute little baby Matt, child of Jeffrey. Wrong. What? Hmm. Are you giving the baby a name now? Well, I thought I just thought that was in the running. Wrong. Hmm. Today's also the NFL draft day, uh, the day millionaires are made. Yes, literally. Literally. Could happen today. You also could sit there and watch the guy that got invited to New York to sit in or wherever they're holding the draft. And they get to sit in the green room, which is a special place with tons of cameras. And they might just sit there for 20 teams to pass uh. on them as they're, they were told they were going to be maybe the fifth pick or the tenth pick. And now it's like 25 and they're still sitting there. And That's everyone, when you do the new agent draft. Yeah. You find a new agent. <laughs> Awkward. You, you watch just the dollar amounts just shrink with every pick. Oh, oh. the money. Honestly, it's it's such a big deal, and you, you know it's still just football. This is this is yeah, to play okay. how many games? Sixteen games. Yeah. Well, so if you actually play all the games, yeah, yeah. yeah if you're yeah, if you get to play, yeah. Plus, many dreams will be shattered today. Yes, people just well not today. They'll have several rounds over the weekend. This is the beginning but... of dream shattering. Yeah. Which is why uh, we also are going to be talking about how to rediscover your zest for life, mm. your joie de vivre. You're not fully clean unless you're zestfully clean. This segment brought to you by Zest. Do you remember that commercial? I totally do. You sounded beautiful. Thank you very much. You're so, so welcome. What? Why do you keep... Well, okay, whatever. What? Huh? Today also, by the way, thank you Thursday. Express your gratitude to people by just saying thanks today. Thank and you very much. You're welcome, Jeff. And it'll make it so you... You'll actually start perpetuating more gratitude in the world by thanking people for just the simple things they do. Mm. Thank you, Terry, for standing. Yes. And looking as you do. In your direction. In my direction. <laughs> Paying attention to everything you're saying at the moment. Yeah. Yes. I can tell you're not, but that's totally fine. I'm just sort of here. And Jeffrey, thank you, Jeffrey, for being a half step short. You're losing the audience, Matt. Man. Yeah, the the audience was more intrigued with the IT guy than with you right now. Mm. Yeah, we've been testing some new uh, segments on the show. IT guy, uh, we kind of have an, an IT guy that's really cheesy that uh, isn't very intelligent. He takes the intelligent out of intel. Yeah. And you can't spell inept without IT. Wow. That's according to the theme song. Yeah. He had a great theme song, though. Um, so we'll be getting to re- re- rediscovering your zest for life. Also, we'll continue our celebration of Prime Rib Day. We are now on plate number three mm. of Prime Rib. And uh, those Prime Rib waffles were wonderful. Great breakfast starter. And we're excited for the Prime Rib brunch that uh, that Don Chaline will be taking us to in a few minutes. Oh, nice. Super great once the show's done. Also, of course, um, after our interviews, we'll be talking with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what is coming up on their show 
because um, today's big NFL draft, a lot of BYU Cougars, not a lot, a few that are in there that, that might be in the running for that as well. Plus, of course, um, our hero of the day. And our hero is, uh, you won't believe, it's it's a superhero in the movies kind of thing. Well, he's, well, a, he's a villain. He's, he's a, a villain, villain, but he's yeah. in superhero movies. But he, but in Inception, is he a villain? I don't remember. There were no really heroes or villains in that movie. It was all sort of this everyone was, did equal bad, it seemed. Equal bad. He's yeah. one of the equal bad people. But he saved he saved the day. So we'll get to that as we as we talk about the excellent work of Tom Hardy, real live action hero. Hmm. But first, before we get into all of that joviality and excitement, let's first get to Terry South and the headlines, find out what we need to be paying attention to in the rest of the country. White House, very excited about the new tax proposal. It's going to change everything. President Trump said so. Uh, But there's this Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. They revealed that uh, this could cost businesses and families $5.5 trillion in the end. (laughs) They're just looking at you. you There's really no details at the moment. It's all just sort of bullet points and targets and those sorts of things. But if things sort of play out as as one way could end up with a, a huge tax deficit for the country. Uh, Trump's tax proposal, which was unveiled Wednesday, includes the plans to cut the corporate tax rate from 35 to 15, three tiers instead of seven tiers for uh, tax brackets of 10, 25, and 35 percent, simplifying the tax tax code. Yeah. I find that to be uh, a positive out of the whole situation. While Trump may build his plan as family-friendly, the uh, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget notes its fiscal tax check that it could drive up the federal debt, harm the economic growth instead of boosting it. Adi- if ad- adequate offsets aren't put into place, Trump's plan would drive the national debt higher than any time in U.S. history, and no achievable amount of economic growth could finance it. Oh, wow. Not necessarily the most positive most endorsement ominous. for it, yeah. so we'll see what goes. President Donald Trump has told the leaders of Mexico and Canada that he will not pull out of the North American Free Trade Agreement, otherwise known as NAFTA. The White House made the surprise announcement in a readout of calls Wednesday between the world leaders. The White House said that the president agreed not to terminate NAFTA at this time. Instead, Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau agreed to proceed swiftly according to their required internal procedures to enable the renegotiation of the trade deal to the benefit of all three countries. Okay. So maybe we won't be uh, having some sort of putting limits on Canadian lumber and they won't be doing games with uh, Wisconsin milk. Okay, good. Let's not... Okay, yeah. yeah. Let's just go back. Okay, do over, do over, do over. No more trade wars with Canada and Mexico. Go back to what we used to do. Trump has blamed NAFTA for American job losses. He, he, He says he believes that in the end result will make all three countries stronger and better, which would be a positive outcome. Absolutely. No more threats. Right. Still not sure on the wall, on either border. (laughs) <laughs> there's the Maple Wall, and then there's the Southern Border Wall. We're yeah. not sure where those are at. On Wednesday, the Trump administration launched a new office called Voice to assist victims of crimes committed by undocumented immigrants. Voice is the acronym there. Wow. As part of the president's executive order to curtail illegal immigration, as part of the Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement Office, immigration officials also established a hotline where people impacted by crimes committed by illegal aliens could receive support. Critics say the initiative unfairly targets and instills fear in non-white immigrants and condones racism. And it did not take long for people to realize this new criminal alien crackdown campaign on hashtag Alien Day. Apparently that hashtag started twin- trending on Twitter yesterday. Really? So naturally the internet uh, heated the call. People started sharing the hotline number online and telling others to call and report how they've been victimized by space aliens. 
Oh, boy. People reported uh, UFO abductions. They're sharing plot points from episodes of The X-Files. U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement officials told BuzzFeed News that the hotlines were tied up by hoax callers all day long. See? Come on! <laughs> Apparently, people were also calling up and reporting Melania Trump as being somehow illegal. Yeah. It's kind of fun stuff. Uh, and finally, by 2022... Half of all the Hershey's individually wrapped sweets will contain 20 or 200 calories or less. Hold on. By 2022, 2022. they're going to reduce calories in Candy more bars than half and- of the Hershey. Downside kind of means that your chocolate bar might be a little bit smaller. Holy cow. Can't they give us both? Come Can't on. they give us everything we want? No. It- See, it's, it's, you know what? This makes me so mad. This is marketing. All yeah. this is is another way for them to make more money. They're not going to drop – I doubt they'll drop the price. I guarantee they won't drop right. the price. So you'll get less product. You'll still pay the same So price. they're doing it they're, – they're making it about calories. It says, but it will also allow to you, in the words of the company, make smarter snack choices. Currently, less than a third of the Hershey's and individually wrapped treats come in under 200 calories. They meet that mark. In addition to making uh, some items smaller, the company will hit its calorie goal by reworking the recipe for some items. A Hershey spokesman calls the goal very close as the standard Hershey's chocolate bar is already 210 calories. You know what? They'll just shave a little bit off the end. You know, they're right. They are going to help me make smarter uh, choices because I'm just going to choose not to eat them. Yeah. See you, bud. Cadbury, you're my new friend. They owns Cadbury. (laughs) Hershey's. They also want to put the calorie label on the front of the package. Wow. Well, that's actually great because no branding, right? So now we don't have to look at the branding. Um, But that's – see right there, we burn calories turning the candy bar over to see how many candy or calories there are. Hershey's, you're killing us. The company also plans to make king-size treats easier to share or save for later, presumably to discourage customers from eating the entire thing at once. Which means you get your king-size candy bar, but it'll actually be like two normal-size candy bars in the same package. Yeah. So it's easier just to stop and not just keep eating the whole bar. You could share it with a friend. Or you could just eat the other bar. Yeah. <laughs> they, they expect you to eat the one piece and then roll the other part up and put it away for later. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. What's happening? And um, do they not understand that this is sexist? How's that? Women. You want a queen-size candy bar? Women tend to be the bigger consumers. No, I shouldn't say bigger. Mm. The yeah. the um, it's a charge charge language. This is going swimmingly, by the way. No, because women consume more chocolate than men. Fact. Thank you very much. Wow. And so that's a fact. Yeah, it's a fact, Jack. It's a okay. never mind. That's a fact, Jack. <laughs> and the funny thing about it is now, all of a sudden, you're saying we are now going to give women less mm. of what they want. Wow. Wouldn't they just buy another candy bar? Maybe. We just need like an electrical shock Why? to hit us when we've reached the amount that they want us to stop at. Yeah. I mean, that, that could happen too. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, also, that's also there. So, so again, I don't think they're doing this because they're just trying to help us lose weight. But they say they're trying to help you make a sensible snack choice. Right. You think this is more about them saving money rather than you eating healthy? Yeah. Oh. Who 
who's the one, I guess, because if they're helping us this way yeah. to make a sensible choice, then who's the one that's been making us have unsensible choices for decades? The same company. Yeah. Huh. They're, so now you're going to be our hero? So this is yeah. just corporate responsibility. First they're, you get us hooked. No? Right. They're telling us that our own judgment cannot be trusted. So maybe we shouldn't even be buying their candy bars in the first place. <gasps> okay. You know what? The answer is very simple. Donuts. Everybody <laughs> yeah. go to donuts. Right. No when, candy bars, just When donuts. they start moving the candy bars to smaller sizes, everybody donuts. At what point do we get to the fun size candy bar and they try to tell us that's the normal size? Yeah. That's a regular size candy bar. Then what would be the fun size? Come on. Right. The junior? No. I'm sorry, but I'm not having a lot of fun when I'm eating a candy bar that's an inch. Do you know how hard it is to open six candy bars and call it fun? Just for one sitting of candy? It's not, it's not fun at all. That's why we're here, folks. We're standing up for you. They're so, telling us when to stop and what is fun. Yeah, first they get us hooked, and then they just keep playing us, you know, just teasing us. I didn't think I'd be this mad about it. So donuts, everybody. Donuts for everybody. We'll take a break when we come back. Rediscovering a zest for life. You're not going to want to miss this one. If you kind of feel blue, tired, exhausted by life, we'll help you rediscover the fun, the excitement, the zest. Be right back. Today's episode of the Matt Townsend Show is brought to you by Cronuts. Cronuts. So good, you'll step over a dead body to get one. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, if you get tired of life, you're just exhausted, it seems monotonous and boring, well, it may be time to infuse those mundane routines of life with what's called micro-adventures. And uh, our next guest uh, has got some great insight uh, insight on it. A micro-adventure, or exactly what they sound like, brief breaks from everyday life, usually involving something that scares us or challenges us in some way. And now the research is showing it is a, it's a very um, efficient way to increase energy, positivity, passion, and a general sense of well-being. So to join us to talk about it is Sean Doyle, who's a positive psychologist and teacher at uh, North Carolina State University. Uh, John Sean Doyle, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Matt. Thank you. This is uh, this is some pretty interesting research. That I mean, people, it, people life's monotonous, right? Life wears you down. You kind of lose your excitement. But you're saying maybe the fastest way to pick up life is by micro adventures. Yeah. So it certainly is a way. Um, so my, in addition to to having my uh, background in psychology, I've also been a, a practicing lawyer for about 25 years and work a lot with lawyers. And what I'll find is that, you know, so many people were so good at uh, meeting our obligations and pursuing our goals and we're really successful at all of that. But then so often we, we lose the, the joy in life and we, we lose the stuff that's fun. And, for for a while, I had done things like microadventures. I didn't have a term for it, and then came across um, some things that Alistair Humphreys had done. He's a he's a legitimate adventurer. He's biked around the world and done some other things, but came up with this idea of using the time that we do have to go out and, and push our boundaries in some way. And it's, I mean, you would think that 
most people would want to stay well within their boundaries. But in a way, maybe that's why life has is kind of becoming dull because it was it was pushing ourselves that that created the luster. Yeah, and you know, and part of it, the, the pushing yourself, it's it can be uncomfortable, and so that's it, it takes a little bit of nudging, it takes a little bit of risk, and recognizing that it's okay to feel uncomfortable. Um, they, they don't have to be big or crazy, and certainly you don't have to risk your life or risk other yeah. people's. You know, but really getting outside of the everyday routine and, and trying different different things. I, I've actually heard some of the re- similar research talking about marriage, where if you want to inject some more excitement back in the marriage, um, do activities, micro-adventures probably is what we could call them, t- together. Then all of a sudden that added zest and energy and excitement and passion um, can actually become – our bodies would interpret it as something we're doing with each other. Oh, absolutely. And and I encourage people for, for any sort of micro-adventures to, to engage a friend. Um, that what that does is a couple things. One, it helps. If I were going to go do them, I would end up doing the same stuff over and over again. So it eventually gets to be kind of my routines. Um, doing with a friend, they bring other ideas to the table. Um, it then also helps us, you know, bond with that person and have shared experiences. And um, and it's a you know gives you the motivation to do it. Um, we, again, we'll get caught up in our routines and things, and we might not always carve the time out to go do something separate. And if we've got our friend nudging us saying, hey, it's time to go do something, it makes it a little bit easier to actually implement these. You bet. And you might even have a friend that's really good at this, like that that's good at creating these adventures. And you, you know, historically, maybe you would not participate as much. But maybe your simple way to get involved is just start saying yes more. Yeah, and um, and it really does. It's what 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 I recommend is people do these. Just start out easy. You know, it doesn't. Again, it doesn't have to be anything really big or grand. But you know, go get a, a portable hammock and sleep in the park at night, mm. or you know, do something that's really just right outside your door and, and not that um, that big of a risk. And as you start doing it, you'll get other ideas, and, and you'll most most of the time you're going to get injected with uh, you know more energy and more excitement, and and start to see things the everyday things around you start to see them differently. Yeah, you um, you I think cited Alistair Humphreys when you said so. A micro adventure is a short, simple, local, cheap. Yet still fun, exciting, and challenging, refreshing, and rewarding. So you're not saying you, you don't have to go climb Everest. You don't have to create this monster goal. It might be just something short, simple, you know, cheap, right next door. And um, talk about what it does to our identity. How how does micro? How do the micro adventures end up changing not only how we see life but how we see ourselves? Well, I think a big thing that it does is it. Uh, wakes us up again. Um, it's easy to get into your day job, go into the everyday routines, and starting to define that that's what, what you do. And, you know, most of us, before we got so busy and professional and, and started wearing suits every day or whatever it is, had other interests and other passions, and, and all of those were intimately woven into part of who we are. And somewhere along the line, as we're, you know, establishing who we are and getting 
establishing our careers and, and becoming serious, we start to lose touch with those aspects of ourselves. Yeah. And isn't it funny that the little kids, their, their whole life is a micro-adventure. I mean, I remember when summer would hit, it was the greatest time on earth because every day, maybe two, three times a day, you were having a micro-adventure just out in the neighborhood, out somewhere, you were going to try something you hadn't tried before, and somewhere in life we tend to lose it. Where does it go? I mean, is it just overwhelmed by responsibility, or or do we actually change? Like I, my son said the other day, uh, one of his goals in life is to go skydiving, and he's like, would you ever want to go with me? And I'm like, <laughs> not really. I really wouldn't. I've got kids. I've You know, if dad died... And I started thinking, what a baby. I got to I gotta get a life. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not. I, I do think that part of it is, um, you know, as we're, we're growing up and, you know, getting more ingrained in our jobs and, and everything else, that that becomes de-emphasized and it's not something we necessarily think about and we're more responsible. And the research does show when they look at, the various character strengths and virtues that, that people have, that kids are higher in zest than adults for the most part, hmm. which is really not, not surprising. Um, but when they look at the, the character strengths and our satisfaction with life, zest is one of those things that has a, a more robust uh, correlation with high life satisfaction. So we're letting that go when we when we uh, let go of zest. We're we're losing that aspect of really just enjoying our lives. Yeah. What What do you have when you've lived uh, an entire life without zest? I mean, it's 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 almost just torture. It seems like it's you're just biding, you're just biding time. You know. Yeah, and it could be you know that we're really good at pursuing our goals, and you know goals are important, and all that's great. But you have a little fun along the way too while you're doing it. Yeah, and 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 some growth, right? Too, and I mean, because that, that's one of the interesting things about positive psychology is we really are learning that people just need to be stretched. And so, when something gets boring, it doesn't mean you have to change your whole life. But if you're bored with going to your work, you probably need to adjust something. The challenge level of it, you need to learn something new about it. you you got to challenge yourself to keep that uh, that energy there. Yeah, and what I find is, you know, in my, my day job as a lawyer, you know, I'm reviewing contracts and, and things along those lines, which certainly can get very dry and tedious. But if I'm, I'm taking this other time to go out and inject myself in other uh, other areas, explore other things, push myself in other ways... When I come back to my day job, I'm more energized. And sometimes I like the comfort of, all right, I don't, <laughs> there's no risk here. I can just kind of focus on doing what I need to do. So it's, I, I think by doing these, it makes us better at our day jobs, makes us more engaged, makes us more alive overall. I do too. I think that's really cool. Let's take a break, Sean. We uh, are talking with Sean Doyle about rediscovering a zest for life. It's a wonderful article that he uh, has written, and um, you can find out more just if you look up Sean Doyle. Um, uh, he's been a lawyer for years, but also um, did some graduate training in applied positive psychology as well and uh, teaches positive psychology at North Carolina State University. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Helping you find a zest for life. We'll be back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Today we're talking about rediscovering a zest for life. And one of the great ways you might be able to do that is a micro-adventure. Again, micro-adventures are short, simple, local, cheap, and still fun, exciting, challenging, refreshing, rewarding activities, adventures that you can do around your house, your neighborhood, your city, your community, or if you want to go, you know, statewide, you can go. It doesn't have to be that you have to plan a big trip to go. Uh, Micro-adventures is something that would you know, toss up your life a little bit, challenge you and make uh, make things happen that w- that might reignite a spark for you. J- to talk about it is uh, John Sean Doyle, also known as, better known as Sean Doyle, who is uh, a lawyer at practice, but also did some graduate training in positive psychology, teaches positive psychology at North Carolina State University. And uh, we're honored to have you here. Thank you so much, Sean, for your time. Oh, yeah. No, this has been a lot of fun. So... Um, Give me an example of a micro adventure. Uh, give us a, give us some more examples of what they look like, and and what are some of your favorites? Yeah, so a couple just really a couple things I've done this year that are really simple and easy. Um, at one point, the the kids were were out of town, and my wife and I realized we had twenty four hours to ourselves. So just on a whim, we went to the beach to you know take in the sunrise. Huh. This was in February. I did a polar bear plunge. She did the sunrise. She didn't do the polar bear plunge. Smart lady. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but just, you know, just breaking out of the everyday, going to do something simple like that. Um, this weekend, I was meeting with some friends uh, in, a, in a local park here at uh, 5.30 in the morning to meditate, and it was pouring rain. And we got there, and it's like, well, let's let's give it a try anyway. And the experience was so much different than what we'd expected. And it opened up a whole lot of new things, opened up some great conversation afterward. Uh, so those are a couple really close and easy. It's one that so I did easy. That I, yeah. Yeah. One that I did that I had a lot of fun with is I travel up to Philadelphia quite a bit, um, which is where I did my, my graduate work in positive psychology. And I usually I'll fly or I'll drive. It's not that far from North Carolina. Um, but one time I, I took a, uh, a public bus overnight, and it was hot, and it was crowded, and there were delays, and, you know, at 3 in the morning, I'm switching buses in Richmond, and, and as I get on the bus, there was a, a Buddhist monk in his saffron robe sitting there. So I, sat, I said, I can't pass this up. Hmm. So I sat with him, and he didn't speak any English, so for the next four hours with hand gestures and laughter and smiles. We communicated and just had a great time. Um, you know, this stuff's right around us every single day, but I would have never picked that up if I were you know, just driving it myself or something else along those lines. Well, yeah, and it almost adds, like, so much flavor to your life. I, I could see others thinking, ah, you know, I don't want to bother him. I don't want to, I don't want to, we almost talk ourselves out of I, out of these adventures because we're so we're kind of so afraid oh yeah and you know the bus ride itself was not convenient it was not the most comfortable way to travel um but that added to it all it, it broke me out of my routine and, and made me question what are the things that i really need and what are the things that are important to me and you know maybe sometimes it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable yeah and um, and then I guess too, to some degree, this uh, these can be done alone, like watching a sunrise. 
but uh, many times they seem really profound to share. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's some some things that, um, you know, I would encourage people to go out and do things on their own. But to the extent that we can engage friends, um, that adds a whole other dimension to it and, and helps improve both the relationships and, and the experience in a lot of ways. Yeah. is um, And I guess then the idea behind the micro-adventure and why it, why it seems to work is – it's it's really is it I guess just the newness of it is it the challenge of it what is it that that brings the zest? I think what it is is disrupting our routines. Um, routines are great. I mean they they help us get through the day that we don't have to actively think about everything. But because of it, we're we're missing a lot too. And when we we disrupt the routine, we're we're challenging our own assumptions about things. And that sort of wakens us to what's around us. And that, that allows us to be more engaged and more mindful and, you know, and recognize that things that might have gotten under our skin or irritated us before, now we can laugh about a little bit more. Um, we see the beauty that's really around us every single day that we just walk right past. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like the routines, they put us on autopilot. And oh, we absolutely. we just fail to then see see the see the things that are present before us. Um, I, I guess because you one of the things I know that you are really into and um, a book that uh, I don't know if you've actually published it yet is uh, what it what it means to be human. Right. Yeah. So I've what I've done is I've published. Um, a selection of essays from the from the full book. So that's that's out there now. Called, that one's called Being Human. Um, it's it's on my website, I, uh, which I know you you yeah. posted on on your site, johnshondoyle dot com. Um, but what they what the articles do in both the, the chapbook, the, the collection of essays, and then the, the full book is they look at this research around happiness and meaning and well being, and they look at how do we make it personal when we're going through the stuff that adults go through in life. You know, loved ones become ill or you have challenges in the workplace or, you know, problems raising children. You know, how do we take this, this research and happiness and make it personal? Yeah. And because and life, I mean, it's it's life. And you're a great writer. I, re, I mean, I was um, I, I read your article, these articles, I would listen to them. But I mean, and, and some of your work I listen to, it's just I just because the but I have to listen to like Siri dictating it, basically. Yeah, yeah. But but it sounds it's incredible. It really is. And it's uplifting and it's enlightening. Um, what would you say kind of as we wrap this up, Sean, what what would you say is the is the, the one thing we can do today? If we are, you know, down, if we're depressed, if we just feel like we're just so in a rut, um, is there is there one is there one thing we could just do today that would kind of be a great kickoff to to getting the and rediscovering a zest for life? Hmm. Um, yeah. So typically, what I do if I'm feeling down or or you know overwhelmed or stressed is I look for opportunities to help somebody else. Um, to go out of my way and go do something, you know, again, it doesn't have to be anything huge, but to go help someone else. And that, you know, you start seeing your connections to people and how you can do some good stuff. And, and it helps improve the relationships. And that a lot of times helps 
kicked out of the fund as well. Oh, totally. And I think it really is. I mean, it's, I call it arrows out, redirecting your arrows out instead of in uh, all of a sudden. And that in and of itself becomes a great adventure. So we appreciate it. Well, Sean Doyle is his name. If you go to his website, a wonderful resource there, John Sean, S-E-A-N, Doyle.com. John, J-O-H-N, S-E-A-N, Doyle.com. You can find out more about uh, his writings and sign up just to receive his newsletter. Powerful stuff. Um, rediscovering a zest for life by starting with these micro-adventures. Let's all pick up one. Just do one. Today, tomorrow, the next day. And see what it does to bring a little color back into your cheeks. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll be visiting the good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. A little light jazz for you as we drop it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matthew. Sports. You missed me? I missed you, man. Gosh. That's you said yesterday. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh. What? You, uh, Ixnay on yesterday. <laughs> hey. You know what, Spencer? You couldn't have picked a better day to come back because Why is that? I, need your ba- I need your Bane voice. Oh, you need my Bane voice? Yes. What do you need me to say? Well, listen to this crazy story. I'm not going to get too into it because it's my hero of the day. But okay. Tom Hardy, who plays Bane uh, in, in um, also Dark, in Dark Knight Rises, he was also in Inception, he was involved in stopping a motorbike theft. No kidding. And he chased the kids down and got the bike back. Attaboy, Tom. Okay. So I, I kind of am thinking I want to. I don't want to like overproduce this. Um, so I'm thinking, hey, like, so what would Bane yell at these boys to get them to stop? Stop you hooligans, or I will curse you. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And we have now recorded it for and posterity, <laughs> and end scene. And scene. Okay. Yeah. So um, what else? What would he really say? Do you feel in charge? <laughs> They're like, what? We can't huh? understand you. Oh, we just got away with the bikes. Louder, please. <laughs> Louder. Do you? Uh, w- Unleash the missile. Ooh. Missile. <laughs> You're good. See? I knew because we're going to turn this into our own little series. We're going to take your recordings okay. and, and put out a, a Bane video. All right. Yeah. We'll get around to it as soon as we... No we one j- else has ever done this. No, no. No, no, no. <laughs> no one has ever put this stuff together. No one's had this idea before. Yeah, it's, it's, it's new. Hey, um, I don't know if you guys heard this. Uh, today's NFL Draft Day. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to make I sure you we guys... were forgetting something, Jim. What? Oh, this changes the show. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't know? Oh, brother. Oh, man. I'm sorry. We got some planning. We got to end this right now. We've only got 10 minutes to figure this out. Yeah, I better let you go. <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> you know, I, I know you've been talking about it. Uh, Jerem brought it. It's been on the show, you know, every day for a week. Yeah, yep. So it's time to get it done, don't you think? Yeah, let's they just, should start the draft today. Let's be Which done with will. it. They should start it tonight. Well, I think if we started it today, it'd be good. Down. So is round one today or are yes. three rounds today? Okay. Round one, Thursday primetime. Rounds two and three. And then Saturday rounds four through seven. Seven? 
Yeah. Uh, so some of the BYU guys, you're thinking probably second round, third round maybe? Here's the kind of guess. Jamal Williams, somewhere between rounds three through five. Okay. Harvey Longy, anywhere from three to seven. seven. Yeah, he's the wild card. And then there's a few guys that could sneak into maybe, you think, the sixth, maybe seventh, probably free agent situation. Okay. Guys like Kainakua, mm. Andrew Idy. They have a shot at getting drafted. And, um, and what of Taysom Hill? What what is yeah, his what? NFL future? Yeah, he's he's going to be at least a free agent, we think. But we'll, we'll talk to uh, Eric Galco of the Sporting News, Optimum Scouting. He's a draft insider guy. He's going to tell us where he thinks all those guys end up. So being Plus Lane Fowler. But being signed doesn't guarantee much, does it? Nope. So Because then they just have to still try out. So, But I guess all the first-rounders is pretty much guaranteed cash. Yeah, listen, if you are drafted in the first three or four rounds, you've got a great shot to make your team. But if you're drafted fifth round or later, you're kind of grouped in there with a lot of the free agents. Yeah, then you got to show it. There's no guarantee for you. Mm. Boy, boy, the pressure of that. That's a lot of pressure. I know. This is. uh, And then you got to go to camp. The dream and the (laughs) life that all these guys have worked so hard for for years. So the total value of the contract for the first pick is about thirty million. The last pick, two hundred fifty-three, is about two point four million. So if you get drafted, you're going to become a millionaire in all likelihood. But not every. Listen to this, man. Half the the NFL is undrafted guys. Oh, is it? Is that right? Half the league. So Daniel Sorensen of the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, uh, a BYU grad. He played a couple years in the league as an undrafted free agent, in and out, in and out, practice squad. Da-da. He just signed uh, about a month or two ago a four-year deal worth $16 million, eight mil guaranteed. Wow. He's a guy that wasn't drafted, did a great job of earning uh, some playing time, and now he uh, has eight million guaranteed. Hey, listen to the guys from BYU that were free agents that are currently playing in the NFL. Okay. Alani Fua, Paul Lasike. Mitch Matthews, Jordan Leslie, Daniel Sorensen, Wani Unga, DeAndre Wesley. And some of these guys made the 53-man roster and were active you know, during the season. Some guys were on practice squads. Others are still trying to make the teams. But there's a lot of guys in the mix. Jamal Williams and Harvey Longy, those are guys that will be on 53-man rosters in all likelihood coming up this season. And then there will be some others that hopefully compete for a similar opportunity. Unbelievable. That's cool. And by, if it doesn't work out, you know, it used to be that they could go to ESPN. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's rough, right? Yeah, that's pretty, really pretty crazy tough. stuff. I mean, yeah. that is crazy. And it's one new name, one new name. Does that – I look at I look at what you guys are doing and, you know, you're, you're, life, you're very secure. I mean, you're like first-round drafts. Um, but, boy, the industry has changed. Certainly at ESPN, the bubble got too big, right? Yeah, it's a big and, bubble. Uh, people don't consume media the same way they used to, not through the subscriber TV account per se anymore. So that caused uh, that bubble burst, and uh, it's cost uh, a lot of people their jobs. Didn't ESPN? They didn't say they were big. Didn't they just say that they were like big boned, fleshy, <laughs> the worldwide leader? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It, I, I'm I'm bigger on nicknames being given to you from someone else as opposed to self proclaimed nicknames. No, I agree. We yeah. are the worldwide leader. It's like, it's true, but it's weird to say out yeah. loud. You can't say it. It's the like world bragging. worldwide leader in sports. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Nicknames should like that. Well, that's, a, that's a, like a motto. So, yeah, you can say it yourself. It's just a little 
brash, no, but I, it's the, true. The, mother, the mothership, as Dan Patrick calls yeah. it. But it's true, <laughs> so it's interesting, right? Has any name on the ESPN list, like, blown your mind? That's somebody that's losing Andy their job. Katz, Andy Katz. Andy Katz, today. college we basketball told, insider yeah. and a guy that hosted Outside the Lines and did a bunch of stuff for ESPN. Yeah, found out he was let go, so that wow. yeah, a shocker. He's, he's the one that... Well, yeah, and we heard that this morning, and Andy Katz hasn't tweeted anything about it himself, but yeah, yeah that's a big one. Okay, well, I hope, hope you're not letting it out of the bag. No. Maybe, I hope Andy didn't just find out. Right what if Andy just found out listening? Because I know he's a big fan of the show. Yeah. Anywho, um, all right, guys. It sounds like it sounds like it's good to ha- it's it's back. Spence is back, so now you guys, you know, it, it got a little crazy with Brian. A little. Yeah, he showed me his abs yesterday. He okay. walked by the window, showed me his abs. Literally, Something. That, Brian has a yeah. tendency to do that. You've that never done that. You've never done that, Spencer. And well, I'm not. My abs are good enough for me to feel confident enough to put them up to the window <laughs> of your radio booth. Then uh, I'll do that. Yeah, you do that. Just, just whatever you do, don't touch the glass. If I okay. like that, I would do the same thing. They, yeah, don't touch the glass. Uh, yeah, and someday you'll get an ab, Jerem. I'll get an, an ab. An ab. Yeah. Singular. Me too. Got a Me too. I got a, I got a keg. That's all I need. <laughs> Tons of fun. Okay, guys, have a great show. Knock them dead. It's just five minutes away. Five minutes away. Five minutes to Nirvana. Sports Nirvana with BYU Sports Nation. Um, as you know, uh, we... We always like to give you a little more uh, empty news as we wrap up the show. One story that I wanted to make sure that we shared um, is about a store clerk that can't read. <laughs> so sad. Store clerk can't read a robber's poor handwriting on a note. And we've done many segments on this that, you know, type it out, text it, you know, SMS. I don't know. Have it proofread. Yeah. Always have your note prepared. Before you get there, a Youngstown, Ohio, in Youngstown, Ohio, a robber's handwriting was so bad that the store clerk he was trying to rob couldn't read the note demanding the money. Um, Police charged 22-year-old Dion Taylor with robbery. According to the report, the man walked into a family dollar store, handed the clerk the note. The clerk said he couldn't read the handwriting, handed it back to the man and asked him to read uh, and asked him to who asked him to read it again. The robber compiled uh, and read the note aloud. So I guess he rewrote it and then he read it out loud. Youngstown police say the note read, this is a robbery. Please be quiet. Don't let your pride get you killed. Signed, the robber. The clerk opened the register and gave the man the money. The man left the store and ran away. Taylor was arrested in connection with the robbery Friday after police released surveillance photos photos from the store. This reminds me of the film Take the Money and Run. Really We've why? talked about this yeah. on the show before. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene where Woody Allen is going in to rob a bank and nobody can read the note that he has written. Do I you, think I have a small clip of it that's here. That's great. Let's listen to that. I'm pointing a gun at you. That looks like gub. That doesn't look like gun. No, that's gun. No, that's gub. Uh, that's a B. No. See, that's an N. It's, it's G-U-N. It's gun. Uh, George, would you step over here a moment, please? So then he converses with his co-workers and like managers. and you? I'm pointing a gub at you? What's a gub? Oh, that would make and you so mad. And then it so says mad. act natural, and they say, this apt, apt natural? What is apt natural? <laughs> That's why don't let your pride get you killed. You know what I'm trying to do here. Can a guy not rob a bank without getting a bunch of lip from somebody? 
man. Anyway, uh, let's get to our hero story. The hero of the day is uh, actor Tom Hardy. He's a real-life action hero, and he chases down a motorbike thief in London. It's either horrible luck or the greatest story in petty criminal's life. You manage to swipe a motorbike only to be run down by a marauding Mad Max. Actor Tom Hardy, who appeared in movies like Dark Knight Rises and Inception, apprehended a teen thief who crashed a stolen motorbike in South London traffic. According to witnesses, the actor sprinted after the boy uh, who was attempting to flee the scene. It was mental. Uh, This is the quote. It was mental like he'd switched to a superhero mode in an action movie, a witness reported. Two boys on a stolen moped had jumped a red light, smashed into a car. Tom must have been walking down the road when uh, he went off like a shot in pursuit uh, and looked furious. I asked Tom what happened, and he told me he chased him through my back garden and caught him around the block, the witness said. Tom Hardy's clearly not a man you mess with. I think he even checked the kid's ID before cops took over, the witness said. It's in what sounds like a scene from one of his films, the son said the star vaulted walls as he sprinted after the crook, then grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, patted him down for concealed weapons. Scotland Yard police later confirmed the report, saying two 16-year-old males ran off and one was detained by Tom Hardy. So he's the hero of the day. Not only a superhero, but he uh, who play, plays one on the big screen, but he also plays it in life. And maybe that's the lesson we can all learn is how do we take our real, you know, our public life and our private lives and we make them one. It's just basic. Maybe the best hero is just the person that has the same identity. Good behind the scenes, great in public. And I think we could all try harder to do that. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back tomorrow. Give you more ideas, more information to create healthier lives. Until tomorrow, make it a great one and let's take care of each other.